welcome, my fellow Astorians. It's another episode of Valar Reredis for the World of Ice and Fire, where we use the topics within this grand tome as a jump-off point to examine the world-building, the rich setting that these characters that we love so much exist in. Understanding the setting helps us enjoy the characters even more. George has put a lot of work into his world, and we shall back him up on that. Let's get to it. Sean, what are you drinking today to help you traipse through the windswept plains of the Barrowlands? That's looking pretty green. You got a green beverage today. This is mud from the Barrowlands. <laughs> Grave juice. Yeah. You got some peat in there? <laughs> it's peat. Yeah, she says there's peat in there. What do I, this is the protein, naked, the protein green naked drink, black cherry bang, and good old classic Mountain Dew. Whew, all right. <laughs> well, you enjoy that. Shout out to our friend Nina for sending us some excellent notes again right now on goodqueenally.tumblr.com with one L in Alley. There is a question about what's going to happen to Big Walder and what's going to happen to Black Walder. That is a question I would like to know the answer to as well. And I would like to make sure you all notice my awesome shirt. As Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. Yeah, that, uh, that is art by our very own Sanrixian. She did that of her own accord of, of the, the infamous Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort. And we decided we wanted a shirt of it. So you can get that on our Threadless store, uh, historyofwesteros.threadless.com or at our website. Are those pats of butter serving as like... Plates of armor. Yes. On a, yes. On the bread. <laughs> the bread. Yes. yes. And he's are. got a butter knife instead of a knife. Yeah, instead of a sword. Instead, I mean, instead of a sword, he's got a big butter, butter sword, knife. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and little That's toast good. emblems on his on his chest there. And on his crown. Yes. He's yeah, a good. mighty warrior. Hmm, you don't want to mess with the Lord of the Bread for it. But you do want to be his I friend because you sit down to eat a meal with him and you wonder when the main course is coming. But they just keep serving <laughs> bread. <laughs> but it's really good. That's bread. a fine main course for me. Yeah, it's, it's damn good bread. <laughs> they don't mess around uh, with the bread shirt. for it. I mean, you would expect to have good bread. Mm. I've got a shirt to match my poster today. Oh, you do? Oh, my goodness, you do. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Staying alive, Jon Snow. <laughs> That's fantastic. Let's get to our trivia question. We love to start off with the trivia question. It's fun to have a question each episode. When Theon and Lady Dustin go into the crypts of Winterfell, she has her guards with her. One of those guards has the same name as one of the Lord Stark statues that Theon thinks about as they pass it. What is that name? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Answer revealed at the end of the episode, as usual. Also, every episode, though more recently we started this, on Patreon... We are doing polls to determine each week's topic. Since we've gotten through the early part of the World of Ice and Fire, now we have so many directions we could go, so many paths we could choose. Why not have you all assist us with that selection? It just so happens that you all picked one that's right next door to the Kranigman, the Barrowlands, literally their neighbor, and that's fun. But we will not be going to a neighbor next week. We have created the Sarnor Rule. Yes, the Sarnor rule, which is what happens when a episode on our Patreon poll gets second place three times in a row. We're going to go ahead and treat it as if it won at <laughs> once. So the Sarnor rule, Sarnor finished second three weeks in a row. So we're going to do Sarnor next week. 
And then the week after that is Ice and Firecon, so we won't be around for that one. And then we'll be coming back with a uh, amalgam episode where we pick up a lot of things that were left off, cut from other episodes, questions from you all that responses and corrections from other episodes recently. So we'll do that. And then the week after that, we've got Yee We're going to go all the way to the far, far east with our guest, Chris Stewart of the History of China podcast. He lives in China, so he knows all, all sorts of fun things. So that's cool. So we actually have the next several weeks laid out. But if you want to get involved yeah. in the Patreon polls, you go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros to sign up and join in the selections. And for those of you who aren't going to Ice and FireCon, Ice and FireCon is really great about recording um, all the panels. And obviously sometimes there's some technical difficulties, but they do upload them to YouTube afterwards. We'll make sure to share them, but you should get a nice windfall of new content with all these panels. Because Aziz, Lady Gwyn, Chloe, there's, I mean, there's a ton of podcasters that are going to be there doing a lot of panels. So uh, you have that to look forward to, even if you're not going to the con. Yeah, that's right. So we'll try to bring the con to you, so to speak, somewhat, at least, at least the panel's part. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Some connections to major topics today include, yeah, we're talking about the Barrow Kings and the Barrow Lands, but there are, like I say, some major topics that get touched on today. The Knight's King, Knight's Queen, Corpse Queen, especially the latter part there, the Knight's King's Bride. Uh, the Tower of Joy comes up a little bit. Lady Dustin, Roos and Ramsay, and Domeric, uh, Domeric Bolton, of course. Not to mention quite a few topics you probably never considered, or maybe have only considered briefly. So let's get to it. The first mention of the Barrowlands comes pretty early on. Something I really like to point out in a Game of Thrones early on is how, I think I even maybe pointed this out as recently as a week ago or two weeks ago, but it's so fun. It deserves, it's a good way to start off today. Robert and the royal party arrive and immediately he goes to the crypts and Ned, you know, follows him. And then they, Ned's next chapter, they go racing across the Barrowlands and we have this quote. The rising sun sent fingers of light through the pale white mists of dawn. A wide plain spread out beneath them, bare and brown, its flatness here and there relieved by long, low hummocks. Ned pointed them out to his king, the barrows of the first men. Robert frowned. Have we ridden into a graveyard? There are barrows everywhere in the north, your grace, Ned told him. This land is old. Yeah, it's very much a metaphor for where Robert's decisions are leading them, or have led them, perhaps, quickly and blindly to their graves. <laughs> or at least, in this case, someone else's <laughs> graves, but it's clearly foreshadowing. So, yeah, we discussed that way back in Valar Aretas for Game of Thrones. It's part of the early exploration of the North, something too vast to do in one shot. But it's very much a feature of a Game of Thrones. Right after this chapter is John and Tyrion going north. 
to the wall. So you get vivid descriptions of, of that as well. And then the next chapter from the Starks is Sansa, which we had last week describing the neck and then Arya running off with Micah and all these other things. There's a lot of exploration in these early chapters. And then we come, it comes back around again in Dance of Dragons and in, in New Dween. But here's the first mention of the phrase Barrow in context, in this context, because Barrow is a generic term that refers to just a graveyard, basically, or a single grave. So here's the first time it's mentioned in the world of Ice and Fire. There is considerable evidence of burials among the giants, as recorded in Maester Kennet's Passages of the Dead, a study of the barrow fields and graves and tombs of the north in his time of service at Winterfell during the long reign of Cregan Stark. So that's interesting to me that Cregan, that was only 100, 120 years ago. So not super long ago. I think that barrow, I think the root of that word yeah. is to bear or to carry, oh. which would apply both to a wheelbarrow, but also the land that buries the dead or maybe carries them to the next oh. world or whatever. You can see the roots of that word. I wouldn't be surprised if it's also connected to bury. Good point. Yeah, that's a good question. A good linguistic question there. You might be onto something there. Bring out your dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Load them up in the wheelbarrow. Yeah. <laughs> Nina points out that one of Cregan's eventual daughters-in-law was Robin Riswell, which was second wife of his or second wife of his second son, Jonal. And well, he probably didn't live to see that marriage, almost certainly. But still, that's uh, there's a lot of little connections here, and. It shows perhaps this this bit about Cregan that this is recent. Maester Kennet's Passages of the Dead, a study of the barrow fields and graves. And this is again a, a, a reason to remind ourselves that the kind of archaeology and study of the ancient world that is pretty common in the modern world wasn't isn't necessarily common in the past of our own world, and not necessarily in Westeros either. So. This Maester Kennet is probably a bit of an outlier. There's probably not a lot of studies done on these barrow fields and graves and probably wasn't a lot done back then. And that, that makes sense to me. Not just that they wouldn't study graves or archaeology in general, that they would avoid graves, right? I mean, this is a world where the dead can walk, <laughs> you know? I think, I mean, in the real world, people are pretty reluctant to open graves is that joke when every time like archaeologists open up a tomb and from like ancient egypt there's always jokes go around like oh the curse don't do it don't, you know but faces are gonna melt off yeah exactly so even now human humanity gets it like we're like yeah maybe we shouldn't do that <laughs> so it's something that's been with us since the earliest basically since we were super prehistoric i mean neanderthals did burials you know it's really you have a combination of a sort of a, a, a respect or a reverence for the dead. It's, uh, I don't know. It's like sort of an unwritten social contract. It's like, I don't want someone to dig up my family's grave, yeah. so I'm not going to dig up their family's. Once enough time passes, maybe it's not anyone's family anymore. They don't know or care. But there's still like maybe supernatural yeah. elements that keep people at bay. But also like archaeology is relatively new. You have to have things that are thousands of years old before you think about digging them up or studying them. I, I mean, maybe nowadays we won't wait that long, but Egypt was thousands of years old before we started to... I mean, I guess people broke into the pyramids and yeah. <laughs> looted them. That's, that was just, some motivation. Yeah, there. that was for, for loot, obviously. But I'll yeah. probably talk about that a little bit more as we go. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 
let's actually start with just a little bit of basics here about barrows and burials. It's it's not as much real world information as we ha- often have in one of these episodes. But on one hand, burials are so vast as a concept, but they also apply to pretty much every culture that's ever existed. So on one hand, it's a simple concept. On another hand, it's a huge concept. It's massive. And if you were to go into every different culture's burial traditions, and they would vary depending on the era, that would take a long time. And we don't need to go that deep. But there's also, but there's a few things we want to say. And, but I'll, and, and to start, I want to point out a fantasy connection. Lord of the Rings parallels are all over the Song of Ice and Fire. Here's a good example. The Barrow Whites are a big part of, well, not a big part. They're a part of Middle-earth. They're not a big part of the story, but they are in the story. The hobbits in The Hobbit are captured by a Barrow White. The Barrow White is a shapeshifter. It can get in your head. It can do all sorts of stuff. It's quite evil. It's got an icy touch and luminous eyes, which is a little bit other-like. But let's be honest, luminous eyes, I mean... Icy touch. Yeah, uh, that's pretty basic. It's a little closer to Martin's tagline, but it's not crazy to have, like, yeah. dead beings be cold. Yeah, so. that's that's pretty straightforward. I mean, I, luminous eyes is the, the most basic recurring feature of, like, villainous creatures. And there's a reason for that. It keeps working. Like, you show me... Uh, a, a new villain that was just created for Marvel or something, and they have creepy eyes. I mean, like, yeah. Like, it just keeps working. Like, we humans fall for that every time, so let's keep using that in our stories. Yeah, it looks cool. It, it works, right? It really does. <laughs> we we usually wear clothes. Otherwise, they would talk more about the luminous penis. <laughs> <laughs> Someone today on Twitter shared with us a tweet about how many ancient sightings of Kraken in the water might just be whale penises. Because whale penises <laughs> flapping around in the water are pink and look like a tentacle. And now you know more about whale penis than you ever wanted to know, <laughs> and you can't unknow it. Yeah, I'm a Barrow White getting in your head with talk of <laughs> whale penis. The, yeah, the hobbits found Barrow Blades there as well. Well, they called them their Barrow Blades. Like, there were grave swords that they kept for a while. At least most of them did. I think Frodo's broke, <laughs> but he got... He got that other cool sword instead to replace it. So he's all he's all right. There's a Barrow Downs, which is the oldest burial ground of men in Middle Earth. There's a Barrow Field, which is the burial grounds of the kings of Rohan. And in Rohan lies the great mountain Starkhorn. Ooh, Starkhorn, mm-hmm. yeah. And it is near the capital Edora. You know, the burial, bur- burial grounds of the kings of Rohan sounds like a, a little bit like the crypts of Winterfell or combined with this idea because those are o- above ground or something like the Egyptian to bring them back up, the pyramids, the Valley of Kings, where they have uh, great necropolises. But this is much simpler. There's all sorts of fancy burial grounds around the world, the real world and around Martin's world. Well, let's talk about what barrows are. That's the most basic concept. It's really just you bury someone and put a lot of earth on top of it. <laughs> it's really quite yeah. straightforward. I mean, the more earth, the bigger the mound. But it's a, you know, that's what a barrow is. A cairn, the Scottish word for it, it's the same thing. And maybe cairns have a little bit more stone in them. But it's not like the Cranig argument where Cranig is very specific and most Cranigs are in Ireland. Now, this is, you throw a body in a, in a, hole and throw dirt on top of it that's a barrow <laughs> or if it's a little higher than that it's a burial mound but this still could be a, which is a type of barrow so yeah really yeah there's this is a very broad definition a human as far as archaeologists know basically this barrows burial mounds began in human civilization around 4000 bc and in in the west it 
went on till until around 600 AD. It stopped around Christianity. Christianity put a stop to that. You know, the hinge, like Stonehenge is like the biggest, most famous or whatever, but that was a, basically a sort of a burial site and hinges of that site, which maybe also are barrows or a form of barrow, more elaborate barrow, but they also were pretty pervasive. But it was, I think, pre-Christianity, but when people from what is now France, I don't even know if it would have been Gauls at the time, but you know, people from Europe coming across the islands of England mm. changed that, changed that burial oh, culture, that burial style. Hmm. So I don't know how much that is like a European difference and Christianity going through Europe adopted that or just a difference in like efficiency of burying people or I, I don't, I don't mm. know what the factors might be. But. Yeah. Worth checking into maybe. Usually early on, they were family burial plots, which is something you still see that tradition now in, in a lot of different cultures. My, we buried my grandfather in a family plot in, in Petersburg, Virginia, not too long ago. And later on, they would get more like designed. There was a little more design put in them. And sometimes they were more about individual people rather than families. And especially when it was someone really important. And the more important person, the bigger the hill would be. Maybe in Westeros, the bigger the hill, to, just to make sure they don't rise and, and start walking around. <laughs> but it's a little bit of prestige that way. It can be seen from a distance. And if there's a chamber inside it, which a lot of them would have, there's room for stuff. Makes it need to be higher to cover it. Yeah, up. you need to vault the ceiling to have room to walk in and build the whole thing in the first place. You got to walk the body in there and put all the stuff in and all that. But the advantage of it is that it can just look like a hill later and no one knows that there's a grave in there. So you can, it sort of prevents against looting in its own time. People know that's the burial site of blah, blah, blah. And then later, no one knows what it was. It just looks like a hill. So it's harder to loot, but occasionally we things are found in, in modern times. You occasionally find like a hill that turns out to be a barrow and it's, whoa, there's like stuff in there. One example of that is the burial mounds of China, the terracotta warriors, the, that huge thousands and thousands of terracotta warriors of the Qin dynasty that was found in 1974. It was buried in the third century BC. <laughs> so that's 2200 that's years. That's crazy to me whenever I think about that. Like also just the fact that I never learned about that in school. I feel like it's a wonder of the world. It's up there with, I don't know, like it's a thing people should know about as much as the Eiffel Tower or the pyramids or something. But I feel like when you were in school, Sean, it would have been relatively new and exciting too. Yeah. It would have been like, look at, the, like, maybe your textbooks weren't up to date yet. It takes a while for things to be to be codified and all that. Like, maybe you just missed it. It was definitely taught when I was in school. Like, we definitely, we were we were taught about it, but that would have been a long enough time for textbooks to be written, I think. So, so maybe that it was might have been too new, or maybe there's still, I don't know, an iron curtain of sorts keeping that flow of information. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe. maybe we didn't even want to prop up Chinese culture or something. Good question. Yeah, I mean, you're you're right, Shaq, because it says it was they were found in 1974. That's that's right around. You know, Sean and I were born right around then. So yeah, you mean you think you might have been in the news and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I I definitely didn't find out about it till I was an adult, till well after school. So the over time, the hills also got shaped a little differently. Before they were just mounds, and then by the Bronze Age, they were rounder, which I think made them stand out a little more and and made them taller and more visible. There's a tradition in Western Europe called Long Barrows, which is also the name of a castle on the wall. It's the one commanded by Iron Emmet with Dolorous Ed and staffed mostly by spearwives. And there's been 40,000 Long Barrows found 
They they started in Iberia, which is, you know, the Spanish peninsula now, peninsula of Spain and Portugal, then Western France and North and East spreading into what's now England and all that. And one idea, it's just like Kranigs, it's not entirely clear what their purpose was. It's a little clearer because Kranig were a little more multi-purpose. This is a little more straightforward and is its place to bury the dead. But there were different purposes to the, the style of burial as in sometimes you would want a place to be able to commune, visit the, the dead, you know, talk to them or have a spiritual experience or whatever you would want to call it. Depends on the belief system of the people that are in question here. These long, de- long barrows, as old as they are, they're predated by Gobekli Tepe, which, which is just wild to me. The Gobekli Tepe is just so incredible. And it's a good example of something that, like the Terracotta Warriors, it's just, it's still now being understood. Like the Terracotta Warriors, we've had 30 years, 30 plus years to figure that out. This is newer than that and way older. <laughs> so we're, I mean, we're talking 9,000 BC for Gobekli Tepe. It's, it's amazing. But that, let's not get distracted by that. But long barrels were the first widespread use of stone. The first copied design that used stone, at least in Europe, and, and probably and possibly the entire world. The, you know, we got to be careful when you say the first thing ever in the world. <laughs> There's always a caveat. So it's entirely possible. Some of this is setting up a, a point I want to make, which is entirely possible. Taking the idea that a lot of these haven't been explored in Westeros, that the same thing is happening or ha- did happen in Westeros, and it just isn't known. What's in these barrows? For the most part, they haven't been dis- been uncovered. I mean, we know they're there, but people aren't going in them. So for all we know, there are chambers, stone passageways, you know, miniature versions of the crypts of Winterfell. Not, you know, that's multi-layered crypt. That's really extravagant and big, but we're talking maybe one level with two rooms or one level with one room, you know, just something that isn't just a mound. You know, there's probably a lot of these are waiting to be found. You know, I don't want to distract George from the the main storyline, but wouldn't it be awesome if you wrote a book 2,000 years in the future about an archaeologist uncovering the barrows (laughs) in the north. (laughs) That would be so cool. That is a feature, by the way, every once in a while, I know I love to drop little tidbits about The Witcher. That's a feature of The Witcher. In the final books, there's a look, but there's some of the characters are in the future doing history on the current story. (laughs) Like looking back on it, it's really neat. It's, It's a cool storytelling technique. Anyway, another example that I pulled here is in the Americas, Native Americans, indigenous people, they had lots of different types of barrows. I don't suppose they called them barrows, but it's the same idea. Burial mounds. There's really big ones in the Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys, for example. They were often conical or elliptical. This is mostly the Hopewell and Adena peoples. Uh, a lot of Native Americans also did effigy mounds, which there was a burial mound that's shaped like an animal, which that really is going to stand out. Of course, over time, it's going to end up just looking like a natural feature. But for a while there... It like would look, what animal? Like a clam? A clam. A circular. <laughs> a kraken, clearly. Yeah. Whale penises were very popular amongst the Hopewell Indians who lived <laughs> inland and had never seen a whale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, they had lots of images of Cthulhu, actually, which is very surprising and unsettling to modern archaeologists. A hog barrow is not a burial for hogs. It's a hog that has been castrated. I don't know why they're, where this term got attached to Why it. would they castrate a motorcycle? <laughs> <laughs> And in England, the term barrow is just short for wheelbarrow. That, that term, that phrase is used. It's just a shortened version just to make it easier to say. So you might hear someone in, from, from England say barrow, 
They're talking about a wheelbarrow, not a burial site. Depending on context, maybe they are talking about a barrel, a burial. But <laughs> for what a if you're burying wheels? <laughs> Is that a wheelbarrow? Whoa! Your favorite when your favorite wheelbarrow dies, <laughs> you, wheelbarrow, it, you have a barrel barrow. barrel. <laughs> oh my goodness! I, another little side note: something that's a relatively new. I don't know, realization, revelation about the pyramids, they think that at least some of them weren't necessarily just looted. They think that there was hmm. an effort of the powers that be to go back in and get some of the treasures back out. Oh, yeah. Whether for accounting and, and, and you know, between like pharaohs and their subordinates to like lists of things that, mm. hey, this pyramid should have these things, go get them back, you know. I don't know how much uh, it was maybe planned in the first place or to preserve the value to keep looters from getting to it or because they were just greedy. Uh, I'm not sure of the details. I think it's a new thing. That but, makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, interesting to think about. And if that potential maybe would be there with barrows also that they wait till the, the ceremony and the funeral and like, okay, go and get the gold back out Yeah, there. let everyone think it is. Replace it with the fake stuff, you know, just in case. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, there's a lot of stories of like ancient Greece or ancient Rome where they looted temples when things were, were dire or, or when they weren't and someone was greedy. But usually it was when things were dire and they needed to sell stuff to raise money for an army or something like that. Yeah, it makes sense here too, like in that same context of Pharaoh struggling they want with to be able to has a pass war. on to their kids or, you know, something that, that they're torn between the meaning or purpose or value of, yeah. you know, do we want this to be part of our culture and our heritage or do we want it to be sent to the afterlife with this person that we buried? Oh. Yeah. We'll give them a chance. Yeah. But if they don't take it with them, go see if they took it with them. <laughs> they didn't take it. <laughs> no, they left it. Okay, bring it back. <laughs> I'll take it with me when I die. Yeah. <laughs> so when we talk about the West, normally we mean the Westerlands. And we talk about, you know, the South we're talking about. Well, it's contextual. A lot of times we're talking about South of the Neck or all the way down in Dorne. But in this episode... When I say the West, I'm going to mean West of in the North. If we're taking the North as a whole here, for the rest of this episode, you can basically forget that the rest of the realm exists. In this episode, the West means the rills and the stony shore, not Lannisport, not Casterly Rock or Fair Isle on the Crag. When I say the East, I mean towards the Bight. I mean towards Old Castle, towards White Harbor. When I say the North here, I mean towards the Wall. So that part still works. <laughs> and if I say the Center... I mean, like Winterfell's region, because Winterfell is basically in the middle of the north. With that in mind, let's begin to do our best to imagine the life of a person from the Barrowlands. It is mostly flat, windswept plains with large sections of graves from apparently the earliest times. When Theon is at Barrowton, he can hear the wind whipping around. And maybe just the, the way the weather is, but apparently... Windswept is a normal feature there, so apparently it's a pretty windy place. It's like the Barrow Sea, you know, the Dothraki <laughs> Sea and the Barrow Sea. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. Like there are tall brown grasses, at least some parts of it, given one passage where Robert yells something and then gets mad about Targaryens and some crows fly out for some tall brown grasses nearby. <laughs> uh, so if you're in the north you're the, trying to locate the Barrowlands. They're northwest or north of, northwest of Mokalen, south of Winterfell and a bit west. Basically immediately northwest of the Neck or southwest of Winterfell, eight days ride. West of White Harbor, east of the Rills. It's bi-coastal though, because a little part of it's in the Bight. At least they have at least easy access to the Bight. That's that area we described last week where it's just really barren. 
where Theon was like, well, east is the bite and west is the swamps and there's no getting away from here. Remember that we talked about Blazewater Bay, which is that portion that sort of juts in to the neck from the west. Now, I may should clarify, Blazewater Bay is the wider portion of that. The inlet, the narrow section is called the Salt Spear. And so once you get in to the tighter area, it's the Salt Spear. When it widens, it's Blazewater Bay. That's how a lot of bodies of water are. It's not entirely clear when bay turns to ocean or things like that. So just keep that in mind. There's two major rivers that empty into the Salt Spear and also the feet from the north and then the Fever River, which was up in our episode a lot last week, that flows from east to west into the Salt Spear and is how Victorian got his men to mow Caelan so quickly. So if you're in the Barrowlands, let's put ourselves there. North would be the Wolfswood and Torrens Square. Northeast would be the White Knife and Winterfell. East would be the White Knife Still and White Harbor. Southeast would be Moat Kalen and the Bight. Straight south would be Salt Spear and the Fever River. Southwest would be the Salt Spear and Flint's Finger slash Blazewater Bay farther out in the bay there. So it's one of the most powerful regions in the north, which led to its relative prominence. The, the people might be a little bit prouder than a lot of the other Northerners. It's just a guess. I'm making an assumption here. But the, the fact that it's such an old land and the fact that it's hosted so many old burials, I don't know. I think you could take some pride in that, that it's a, it's a hearth. It's a, it's a center of old Northern culture. But as I indicated at the beginning, we have no idea about these graves. <laughs> there's, there's first men in them, but we've already discussed how even first men is kind of a misnomer and unclear the first king is supposedly one of these. The, the town of Barrowton is built atop the first king's barrow, assuming that's really what it is. But the rest, we can't name a single other one, <laughs> but there's got to be Even some great the, stories. Even the first king, some people theorize it was a giant. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, you're right. We, it could, it's, some because of them it's so might be big, children. Yeah. There's a mention of stone monuments, too. Like some of the barrow fields have stone structures, small, like a gravestone type thing, but something a little less shaped. But they, some of them do have runes on them. And this is the kind of thing that I suppose Maester Kennet was deeply getting involved in, studying these barrow fields. And whenever there was an inscription to study, I'm sure that'd be of great interest, assuming there's anything that can actually be gleaned from it this many thousands of years later, which maybe not. Good note from Nina here. It's also a sign of the ancient development of human, or at least human and sentient humanoid culture in the area. One of the ways human culture is set apart from the animal world is that human societies usually treat their dead with respect and even reverence. Even though dead bodies have no intrinsic practical value, we have been caring for the dead for thousands and thousands of years. We do. It's, it's something we do. By having lots of barrows representing lots of dead individuals, yeah, it could feel very ancestral, long-developed, very attached to northern culture. Even though the first men didn't originate in Westeros, this is a place they chose to sanctify, in a sense, to bury their ancestors. And that uh, carries a lot of weight, I would think. Don't you think, Sean? Yeah, I'm just surprised that Nina is going to totally disregard the value of human flesh. (laughs) No intrinsic value. Get out of here. Yeah, I mean, that's meat. (laughs) Those bones, I mean, you could make things out of (laughs) I mean, what was it? One of those umbers said they wanted Mance Raider's skull for a drinking cup. That's a cup. Cup. Cups are useful. (laughs) And let's not forget that while White Harbor is now the biggest population center in the north, White Harbor's pretty new, relatively speaking. So in more ancient times, the biggest population center in the north probably was Barrowton 
if there was a Barrowton back then or just that region. So regardless, it became one of the very few population centers over time. Here's a quote taking us into that. White Harbor, the North's sole true city, is the smallest city in the Seven Kingdoms. The most prominent towns in the North are the Winter Town beneath the walls of Winterfell and Barrowton and the Barrowlands. So I'm guessing that maybe it's one of the first regions in the North that was settled. It would stand to reason, right? It's, it's right there by the neck and it's wide open. It's not as difficult as the swamplands. It's not as deep as the forests. It seems like a kind of a natural place to go to. It's near a forest and it's near a water source, yes. which would be two key things. Very true, Sean. Great point. Yeah, because you can go hunting in the woods. You can go fishing near the sea. You've got trade. That's a really big deal for early establishment. Like, think about how big a deal that was, because Lannisport and Old Town, those were around in ancient days. So anyone with sea access or whether you can get down the river into the Salt Spear and then out into the bay, then sail south, you could go to Lannisport, Old Town, Bear Island, Fair Isle, the Shields, the Arbor, Starfall, maybe even... People from those places can get to you also. Yes, absolutely. So that's a really big deal. And that's all just on the West Coast. You don't have to go... Because remember, sailing around Dorne is really difficult and ancient sea vessels would probably have had an even harder time of it. They might not even want to try. And with this, they might might not have to. They might say, yeah, this is enough. You can make a a good living off this. Just some examples. There would be amber from the wood, from the wolf's wood, but also hides and, and wood, of course. Fish from the rivers, from the salt spear and the bay and beyond horses... This is also good horse country. You can't, it's hard to breed horses in the deep forest or in a marsh, but in a, on plains. I mean, we saw Robert racing around the plains. He was having a great time with all that wide open space. That's a good spot for it. And we hear when we get to more modern Starks and, and, and Northerns, we hear like Brandon was fostered with the at Barrowton and he loved to ride. And Roose Bolton's son, Domerick, was, was uh, Lady Dustin's nephew and he was a big rider as well so yeah it's a it's horse riding country a little more to the west is where it's truly horse riding country the rills the riders of the rills which is feels like another nod to lord of the rings there riders of rohan but either way horse horse country for sure we see a couple of these houses around here have horse head sigils and, and things like that that refer to that but barrowton let's let's have a quote about barrowton Barrowton, too, is somewhat of a curiosity, a gathering place built beneath the reputed Barrow grave of the first king, who once ruled supreme over all the first men, if the legends can be believed. Rising from the midst of a wide and empty plain, it has prospered thanks to the shrewd stewardship of the Dustins, loyal bannermen to the Starks, who have ruled the Barrowlands in their name since the fall of the last of the Barrow Kings. Like I said before, this is, everyone recognizes it as the Barrow of the first king, whether it actually contains him or not, or some big giant or whatever. It has been standing for eons. We're not sure when Barrowton was built on top of it. It's probably like a lot of towns. It wasn't just someday someone walked up and said, okay, I'm making a town here. It was a place where people started building homes because it made sense, right? Like Sean said, it was a place that had access to things that humans need. And so a lot of people were like, yeah, this is a good spot. And then all of a sudden you've got 20 homes, 50 homes, 100 homes. Then all of a sudden someone builds a wall and someone takes over and you've got Barrowton. It's definitely way older than White Harbor. We know that much because White Harbor is relatively new. We have a decent sense of when that was built and Barrowton was there long before that. You always wonder if maybe there's a little bit of Maybe more at the time than now, but is there a little bitterness that, you know, Wide Harbor is bigger and richer? (laughs) 
Barrel Hall has square towers, which is evidence that it's older. Remember that Jamie gives us that lesson when he goes to Castle, to Raven Tree Hall, rather, and notices the old square towers, which he's like, yeah, nowadays they build them square, or they build them circle, because trebuchets, it bounces off, you know, more. It's, it's less likely to, to hit square that way. Hit square, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> you also have a better peripheral vision as far as the lookout goes. Oh, that's a great point. Very good, yeah. You don't have this blind spot you know, or as much of it. I think you may use less material building that way too. I think the rounded edges cut out some of the maybe less total raw material gets used, but that don't quote me on that one. Now, Barrow Hall is mostly, or sorry, Barrowton and Barrow Hall is, which is within Barrowton, has uh, wooden structures mostly, uh, which is a sign of lesser wealth. It is a town, not a city, but it is one of the biggest it does have broad, straight streets. Some are lined with elms. We see that when Roos and Theon are riding along it. Do you think anyone ever has nightmares there? <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I do. <laughs> wow. Barrowton, Nightmare on Bar- Barrowton's Elm Street. That's I didn't realize at all this time that Elm Street was in Barrowton. <laughs> yeah. Oh. So that's kind of neat to think about how just it, over time would have developed into something like this. And and it's it's seemingly situated. There's two. The river that it sits on is like a like a like a V, and it sits between the V. So it's and then in that that V forms into one river south of it. So it's really well situated there. So it's got water on both sides be hard to approach it from certain angles with an army. We don't know what that river's called. I'll just call it Barrow River uh, for now, since it doesn't have an official name. And, you know, like the other ones, it flows into the Salt Spear. So Barrowton is closer to that inlet. It's closer to the, the Salt Spear zone than the bay portion. So, yeah, I mean, this whole business of the first king, it's really neat. There's not a lot we can dig into, ha, to dig into, <laughs> but... I still want to talk about it. What do you? What's your impression, Sean? Did you have any kind of takes on this? You you feel like it's more likely to be a person than a giant? We do know that the giants make burials, so that's that's established. It's it's definitely a thing that giants do. But on the other hand, just the fact that it's big, I don't know. That seems like a kind of a, a simplistic conclusion. It's big. It must be a giant. You know, like <laughs> pyramids are big. They're not giant. They're not giants in there. I think it's reasonable to think it's a giant but i think that there will be more of them mm. and it, i think it's weird for there to be just that one that's a giant Does that makes yeah. sense it seems like the, maybe it was a special giant maybe it was a giant that helped the first one of the kings of the first men and that's why he was revered or mm. a one with the king type, yeah. if they had some sort of yeah what i think aside from the giant speculation it's unlikely that it was the first king for one who knows who the first king is? Yeah. Like, how Why does someone he have a know who? <laughs> yeah, like, even at that time, there might have been someone claiming to be the first king. And 200 miles away, there was someone else claiming to be the first king. And they didn't even know that each other existed. Does that make sense? Who's to say who the first king was or to know it or to realize it's important at the time? It's probably the first king who had the clout and wealth, etc., to make a barrel of that size. Yeah. He probably wasn't the first one, just the first one that was significant and powerful he enough was the first to, king to have monument a barrow. himself. He was the first king to have a barrow of that size. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the full <laughs> sentence. He was the first king to have a barrow of that size. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or just have a barrow at all. I'm not an expert on Egyptian history, but I'm fairly certain there were plenty of pharaohs before the first pyramid. 
Yeah, that's true. How many of them do we know the names of? They don't go down in history. You know, there's all kinds of things that affect that. But you you see my point is that it's it's way more likely that it was just a king that was powerful enough to have his name be. Well, yeah, he didn't even get his name remembered. Yeah, yeah, right. Like (laughs) (laughs) that's a pretty big one. Yeah. Not knowing the name. But it'll be perpetuated by the people of that land once once they decide or believe that that's their claim. What's going to make that go away? No one ever is going to be like a few hundred years. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't the first king. We don't need to have this clout for ourselves. Why would we make some, you know, of course, they're going to have keep this claim and maintain it and teach it. So. Yeah, there's like you just said, you can use some logic to point out that it's probably not true. And it's a pretty strong counter argument. But nobody knows for sure. So people are going to choose to believe what they want. And, and no one's proven otherwise. Until they prove otherwise, they're going to just believe the thing they want to believe. And if you're from the barrel ends, why not believe the thing that makes your land seem a little cooler? And, and you know, if someone wants someday disproves it, meh, you know, then got to live with that. But that sort of thing doesn't happen a lot in Westeros. People aren't deconstructing myths very often in Westeros. So <laughs> most people are allowed to believe that and just go on with it. Barrow Hall and Stout Hall are both inside the town, which is different than a lot of other cities, in part because they were built later, right? This is so old that they were built together. But it's like King's Landing that has the red keep inside. It's not certainly not unusual. It's just noteworthy. And a lot of times the things are separate, right? For example, Wintertown is not the start. The Winterfell isn't surrounded by Wintertown. It's just really close by. Uh, it's not in it. It's near it. But there's there's like other examples like that. And like at White Harbor, there's the, the Wolf's Den, which is right next to the city, but not technically inside it. I think so. Actually, maybe I have that one wrong. But anyway, regardless, there's examples of both throughout Westeros. It does have an impact on how the city gets ruled. For example, if you have a city and and town that are separate, occasionally like one can be captured while the other is still held by the locals. But that's a, a different matter when they're in the same space. So anyway, it does create some different strategic uh, options or situations and the, the people who rule living close by or far away or medium away does have an impact. Uh, here's a little bit more about the horse things, the horse business from Nina. She says, House Rider used to rule the rills. They're extinct now. Rider, like the uh, moving trucks spelled with a Y. So House Hertz was also nearby, as was House Budget. And the current Riswell <laughs> rulers bear a sigil of a horse's head, like I alluded to before. And this is uh, maybe where Liana rule, learned to ride as well, because Brandon was out there. So Liana as well would make sense. Uh, yeah, it fits pretty well. And we know that she was a great rider, maybe even one of the best. So, yep, this could explain a little of where she learned it, because she probably wasn't allowed to. She wasn't fostered with the with the Dustins. So. Uh, she had to learn from her brothers, just like she learned like sword fighting because her father didn't want her to do that. So, yeah, that's uh, probably where that came from. Let's go really far back. But to take us really far back, let's use a quote from a lot more recently, which is Great John's speech to the gathered northern lords and northern soldiers and Catelyn and a few other people before naming Rob King in the North. Friendly Baratheon is nothing to me, nor Stannis neither. Why should they rule over me and mine from some flowery seat in Highgarden or Dorne? What do they know of the wall or the wolf's wood or the barrows of the first men? Even their gods are wrong. (laughs) So in his 
speech here with his very impassioned home, you know, home team speech. He's he mentions some of the things that make the North the North. And he mentions the barrows of the first men. It's an outstanding feature, something that people from the North wouldn't understand or value the way a northerner would from the South. Right. People from the South wouldn't value or or the way someone from the North woods. Thanks for your correction. It's, It's an important place that a lot of Southerners wouldn't even have heard of. Right. The North remembers. I know we've criticized the consistency of that memory. This is a good one because they definitely remember this. And the huge amount of physical evidence is part of why. The place is called the Barrowlands. It's hard to forget. If it was named Graveyard City, people wouldn't be like, <laughs> gosh, what is the purpose of this place? You know, he hearkens to a time when the North was one, when it was a separate from everyone else, consistent and self-contained But before it was one, the North was a bunch of kingdoms still separate from the rest. So still had that cultural connection, but it wasn't united. And that's the time frame we're a little more interested in right now. So as Andals are conquering and intermingling with the first men kingdoms of the South, as we went over last week, and as you all knew before, they weren't able to penetrate through the neck, at least not very much. But we know that in this time, the Starks were powerful, but they didn't rule the whole North. They were just one of the great powers. So we're dealing with an era before that great coalescing. And the interplay between Stark and Barrowlands might be one of the things that kicked off that great coalescing. Because it's hard to get an advantage. Sean, you played enough strategy war games to know you have five equally matched armies. How do you get an advantage? How do you get into a place where you've beaten all four of the others. <laughs> it's really hard to pull that off. A lot of times you have to wait for one, someone to make a mistake. Someone's weak, you jump on them. But if if you jump on them, the others see that you're going to gain an advantage and maybe try to stop you from getting more... It's pretty hard to pull off. So sometimes when one is beaten and gets the strength of the other, then they have the strength of two. All of a sudden they have that upper hand and then it just goes from there. But for a long time you have that... <laughs> that in-between zone where no one can get the upper hand and it's just everyone's waiting and little skirmishes here and there. It's Depending on all the dynamics, like not even counting terrain factors. Yeah. But when if one person takes over another and so now they theoretically have double the strength and can take another one out, that makes it more likely for the others to team up with each other to stop that from happening. Yes. So it, it further prolongs the coalition, if you will. Yeah, it's like a like a standoff, a northern, it's not a Mexican standoff, a northern standoff, because there weren't any Mexicans around. Canadian whatsoever. standoff? Yeah, just okay. a standoff. <laughs> I never understood why why that had an ethnicity attached to it. <laughs> it's like plenty of people I, have that kind I of I always standoff. thought it came from the good, the bad, and the ugly. I don't oh, know if that's true okay. or not, but to me, that's where it comes from. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Back to the north. Yeah, it's, it was probably a really interesting time, and it was a long period of time, most likely. A great number of kings that would have some of the smaller regions probably picked on each other and coalesced into some major kingdoms of the North until there were only a few powers. And that's what we're interested in. We're not interested in the time when there were a hundred kingdoms in the North. That's going maybe too far back, although that is a very interesting time. We're more talking about when there was maybe five, six, eight kingdoms in the North, when it was like red kings to the East Kings of Winter holding the center and the, and the Wolfswood, or maybe the Blackwoods were still there. Maybe the Blackwoods were still ruling the Wolfswood, which was called Blackwood back then. Or the, and the Marsh Kings were in the neck, which is the south in this relative partition, and the Barrow Kings to the west. Skagos would have probably still been pretty separate. 
Bear Island probably took care of itself for the most part, probably traded and, and maybe raided or went back and forth, but probably wasn't ruled from the mainland at this point. Carhold didn't even exist. Neither did White Harbor. The Wolf's Den probably didn't either. Moat Kalen was a whole castle, not a ruin. And in general, the realm was wilder, less developed, fewer towns and castles. Pretty interesting time. I would really love to see stories told in this setting. You know, with the great expansion of Martin's world, maybe this thing we'll get one day. It's not on the horizon, but maybe in the, in the far-flung future, we'll get something like this. It's the kind of thing we would have gotten in that TV show that got, didn't ever happen, that Blood Moon show. But I don't think they would have done a good job with it <laughs> because the people making that show didn't have this level of knowledge of the world building that we're expressing to you today. So I don't know. They, would have, they wouldn't have handled these details pretty well. We may have dodged something there. What do you think about this, Sean? How's this kind of thoughts does this kick off in your head thinking about the, the North and this state of early, more primal, more vicious kings, more brutal? A, a, a couple thoughts spinning in my head, just further thinking about the nature of the potential conquering of the, or, or in consolidation of the lands. Is it... It would. I think you might even have this somewhere else in a document, but the, the idea is like if one of these powers rallies their men and forms an army and marches across, you're automatically at this disadvantage when you show up to the other person's castle. You yeah. know what I mean? They have home field advantage. They're at defendable walls. Like it's a lot more effort to like leave your home to go attack someone else. It's harder to get resupply and everything. And so in the north where it's more spread out, there's smaller population and more lands between. It makes it even more difficult to go out and conquer. You know, yeah. even if you conquer some castle, all the people in the lands around are like, whatever. <laughs> I don't. I'm still <laughs> farming my farm. Like, I don't care who controls that castle. You know. And an, a, another thought that I had, like you said, is that think of where a lot of the classic great adventure storytelling time periods that we have come from: the American Old West, the feudal like Europe. You know, the the, the times when things were less consolidated and organized and controlled are the times when there was more adventure for better or worse yeah. more adventure in battle we, we get more stories because it's more at stake like lives are at mm. stake the future of the kingdom is at stake and maybe some stories are more relatable when it's like a kid struggling with peer pressure at school you know that might be a more relatable story to some people but for great adventure stories they don't most of them don't come from modern times they come from times before lands have been organized under central control yeah, well said. Which is yeah. what you're talking about in the north, you know. Yeah, another one that comes to mind for me is the Greek city-states. That's one where yeah, yeah, they yeah. Have, there's there's different regions of Greece. It's all Greece, but there's like the hill country and the sea and the coast and the mountains and the, but they all worship the same gods and you know, it's hard for one to get a leg up on the other cuz it's just one city, you know, and yeah. It's really interesting. And you trade when when these city-states coalesce into one, you trade the constant warring for politics. It's funny to think about how politics is something we all kind of just like, oh, so exhausting and painful, but it is better than constant war. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> it definitely could be worse. Let's talk about the, the Barrow Kings. We've, we've laid out the north a bit and established the, the regions. Let's get to our central focus and have a quote. As he climbed a wide flight of wooden steps to the hall, Reek's legs began to shake. He had to stop to steady them, staring up at the grassy slopes of the Great Barrow. Some claimed it was the grave of the first king who had led the first men to Westeros. Others argued it must be some king of the giants who was buried there to account for its size. A few had even been known to say it was no barrow, just a hill, 
But if so, it was a lonely hill, for most of the Barrowlands were flat and windswept. It's an interesting argument, right? Like, where are all the other hills? Why is this hill by itself? That does maybe imply that it was man-made. It's also maybe another nod to Lord of the Rings, the Lonely Mountain, a key feature of The Hobbit. It's where Smaug was and all that, where the, where the ring was found. So whether it's a hill or a barrow, it's an interesting question. You know, if you lived in the north and you wanted to bury someone but were worried about them, you know, rising, <laughs> you, you might compromise by piling a lot of dirt and stone on top. But <laughs> you might also, like Sean expressed some cynicism about whether this, about some of these claims. And I think that's a right, the correct attitude to have. We mentioned politics a minute ago, and that's exactly what where we're going with this thought. I think this is political... Nina has used the term mythological propaganda. I think that's perfect. We talked about that with Garth Greenhand, Brandon the Builder, Lan, the Clever, Duran, God's Grief, the Grey King, all these propped up ancient figures that sound so fantastical to pop to, to in turn prop up the people who descend from them. Similar thing going on here, most likely. This whole first king, his legend just didn't quite achieve the level of some of these others, I guess you can say. But but they were up against Brandon the Builder. Like, that's the kind of competing founding figure. Like, I don't care that much about Casterly Rock or the Grey King. That stuff's in the South. But, but Brandon the Builder, that's a local hero, legend, mythological figure that if they want their house to rise above that, their primal founding figure needs to be above Brandon uh, for them to have a better chance or to have any chance. Even Brandon the Builder was likely multiple different people. It, it probably wasn't just one person. It's probably like a series of people whose accomplishments got lumped together. Maybe even probably they had all the same name, maybe even father, son, grandson or something. It's possible this Barrow of the First King might have been a Barrow of the First Kings. Uh, it might have been a series mm-hmm. of kings. Like at several of the pyramids are built together or have several people built Buried inside of one, part so of one on, dynasty. So. Yeah, that's a great, great yeah. point. You're right, Sean. I like Might that. Might further explain why it's so particularly big and why there aren't others around because they're all put together in the same spot. And we did allude to that when we were talking about real life barrows. The earliest barrows a lot of times were family barrows. Mm-hmm. And that could be like the first king and his descendants or just this first guy that ruled this area. Because the first king claims dominion over all first men, which is a wild claim. No wonder, like, talk about trying to go big. Like, even Brandon isn't like, I'm not trying to rule everyone. I'm just trying to protect protect everyone from the others coming back. You know, it's a more modest, hey, I'm a man of the people, you know. <laughs> I'm just trying to protect everyone. And that's ultimately what won out. I'm sure military might. It had a lot to do with it as well, but that message is the one that won in the North. It's, look, you're about ruling. We're about protecting. I guess the, the sort of the message from the Barrowton, from House Dustin, is we're the top dog. We're the first king. We descend from that. We have this right to rule. We, we rule all first men. The Starks never really made a claim like that. They're like, winter is coming. That's their house words. You know, that's we built the wall. We built Winterfell. We stopped the others. We're going to warn you when it's happening again. Doesn't that make us more of a leader figure? You know, we're the ones that are trying to protect everyone rather than the ones who says I'm the best, right? Like, the, the, that old lesson about that, that Tywin said to Joffrey, anyone who says I'm the king, <laughs> if you have to constantly remind people you're the king, you're probably not. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, another thing you can imagine is those mentalities playing out over time. Someone who's trying to rule and conquer people and someone else who's trying to protect and foster people. 
after a few generations of that, which one of those peoples do you think are better off? Which yeah. populations grow more? Which one is better fed? Which one's more resilient to hardship, et cetera? As Lady Dustin says, and this is a great, that's a really great point there, Sean. Well point. He, she says, Northmen fear the bull dread for it, but they love the Starks. Right. Yeah, and if you love your leader, you're going to fight way harder for them. You're like, no, I don't want this other guy coming in and taking over. We're so lucky to have a quality leader. We definitely don't want to give that up or lose that. We don't want some crappy dude coming in and taking way more of our tax revenue or what have you, making us fight, stealing our women, whatever, you know. When you're afraid of a leader, you don't want to get noticed by them. <laughs> Even doing something good it might be dangerous. But when you love your leader, everyone will go out of the way to do anything they can for them. No one's afraid of being noticed or getting in trouble. And Absolutely. So. You want their attention. You're like, yes, notice me. Yeah, Witness me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've gone into the far-flung future. We went from the ancient barrel lands to Mad Max <laughs> to post-nuclear <laughs> apocalypse Australia. <laughs> oh, we really go places in this show, don't we? Hmm. But the other thing is the concept of history being written by the winners. If the armies of Barrowton had won out over the Starks, the first king myth would be bigger in current times. And it may be that the structure of Winterfell would be built in Barrowton. And oh, that, hmm. yeah, that, sure. that Barrow, the first kings might be the crypt of Barrowfeld. Yeah, true. Barrowfeld. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a great point. Like the, the success over the long term winning, you know, like, we remember the Casterlies, but they're not, you know, but they're gone. The muds, the rains, using example from long ago, from medium ago, and from recently of houses that got wiped out. If they hadn't, or if they had done better, they would have, their name would have been, la would have lasted longer or, or been remembered differently. And taking a, sh and that claim that he's the first king who led the first men to Westeros, he's not just taking a shot at being above Winterfell, that's taking a shot over like a Garth Greenhand, right? That That's the, the same myths as Garth Greenhand came first and spread fertility and did all the other ones. So they basically have these directly competing legends. And some people say, well, that is Garth Greenhand. Some people combine the two myths and say, ah, the first king is, it's the same person. They've just attached themselves to it differently. The people in the Reach say one thing about it, the people in the North say another thing about it. But we know that in Westeros, the older you are or the older your family is, the more status you have. I mean, it's obviously not that simple, but that's just a when you're making the calculation of prestige, <laughs> coming from an ancient family matters a lot. So if you can say that you are born from the first king of Westeros, you can see why that, that, that worked really well for the descendants of Garth Greenhand. I mean, part of it was they had the swords to enforce that claim, whereas the Barrowton, less so, but still quite a lot. Just, you know, they're not the reach, but they're powerful. So given that they claimed primacy over the North and all first men, it would make sense they would go after the other big dogs that are close to them first. Barrington's not going to declare themselves top and then go try to assault Casterly Rock, right? No, they're going <laughs> to deal with their neighbors first, I would think. So I, I would imagine as the Barrow King rule spread... If we look at the map, just look at the neighbors, right? I don't think they ever took the neck because we know the neck was only taken by Rickard Stark and they may not have wanted to do that, but they probably fought over borders, like where exactly the realm begins and ends. It may have fought over Moat Kalen as well because Moat Kalen's pretty much impossible to take from the south, but the Barrowlands is not south of the neck, it's west of the neck. So they could be, they could be approaching from the side that's less defensible. Flint's Finger, the Rills, the Stony Shore... The Glovers of Deepwood Mott, they all had kings of their own at some point. And a lot of these houses would have been subjugated, if not by Winterfell or by the Red Kings and by 
the Barrow Kings. A lot of extinct northern houses fell off because of the Starks. Surely some did because of the the Barrowton, the Barrowlands as well, the Barrow Kings. Torren Square, that's an important castle. It sits on a lake north of Barrowton. And it's, you all may remember, it's the seat of House Tallheart, currently held by Dagmar Clefjaw. It's the, one of the few spots that the Ironborn still have in the north as this war rages on. And I would imagine, given its position right on this important lake, holding this river right at the, at the edge of the Wolfswood, probably a pretty important strategic location in the ancient north. I imagine that the Barrow Kings maybe tried to take it more than once, maybe held it more than once, and may have gone, may have been a lot of back and forth there. The idea that some of these details that we speculate on, like you said earlier, if they had won, we would know them better. You yeah. know, we know more details of Stark history and Stark past and conflicts than we do of others because they're the ones that ended up on top. So they get more attention, get more, we get more details of them from, from George, you know. Yeah. So let's talk about the next section here. It's called, that we're calling the Corpse Queen. This is probably what a lot of y'all are most interested in when this, when in this episode, because it's something that's an ancient legend that's been around since the beginning of the books. And we're very curious about it. And we've gotten closer and closer to maybe getting some reveals with this plot line at the wall. Uh, so let's talk about the Bride of Night's King, the Corpse Queen, starting with a quote. In the Citadel, the Archmaesters largely dismiss these tales, though some allow that there may have been a Lord Commander who attempted to carve out a kingdom for himself in the earliest days of the Watch. Some suggest that perhaps the Corpse Queen was a woman of the Barrowlands, a daughter of the Barrow King, who was then a power in his own right and oft associated with graves. Right, so this is a really cool example of something George does so well where he manages to split the difference on the presentation to showing how it could be supernatural it could be just flowery description. It could be both, right? Corpse queen, king of the dead versus king of the dead, right? Someone who actually rules over dead bodies versus someone who rules a land that's full of graves. That's, that's a really, you can see how that could get confused. Are they actual undead or is it just, yeah, this is just a lot of graves in this place. So he rules over that land. So that's pretty cool. The, the mixture of ideas here. Is it a queen of the Barrowlands or some sort of lich queen type figure, like some other, someone from the others, which is certainly a, a, a possibility. It's not some like wild theory. How long ago would this have been, by the way? Well, the, this is the time of Night's King. So 13th Lord Commander of the Wall. So pretty, pretty damn far back. So not more than 100 or 200 years after the wall was built, most likely. Before the North would have, before the Starks would have had consolidated definitely. control of the yes, North. Yes, definitely right? before that. So if there was any sort of animosity between the Starks and the Barrowlands or, or other entities, there might have been a desire, an attempt, a sort of a propaganda to downplay yeah. the Barrowlands Queen. Yeah. Uh, the Queen of Corpses, you know, yeah. might, it might have been a mocking title. That's you know? true. Because, yeah, you don't think they would put that on themselves. Right. Yes, I'm the yeah. Corpse Queen. You're like, whoa, that's creepy. And we we're told that Night King was a Lord Commander and he did some different stuff. And, well, let's actually hear about that version because we've got this is the World of Ice and Fire quote we just had. But here's the version Bran has heard from Old Nan. A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice. 
And when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king. And with strange sorceries, he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled, Knight's king and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Jeremoon of the Wildlings had joined in to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of Knight's king had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. But what about the Knight's queen? What about her? The stories focus on him even though a woman was his downfall. It's like, what? That, that, it's like a little weird, <laughs> baked-in historical misogyny there. Like, it sounds like he did pretty well for himself screwing his own life up. <laughs> it's, like, well, <laughs> it's like, how is she his downfall? <laughs> he, he conquered the watch and tried to make a kingdom out of it, and, but she was his downfall. <laughs> maybe know. she motivated him to do yeah, it. Yeah, I guess. Uh, That's the implication. Maybe people who want to maintain him as a hero want her to blame. I, I get some... Yoko Ono vibes. Yeah, good. There, you know, <laughs> that's a good call out. Yoko ono that's vibes. hilarious. That's really good. Yoko, corpse queen. Yo, corpse queen. <laughs> okay, so let's look at this two ways. Let's look at the the mythological version. Let's let's imagine that it is as fanciful and sorcerous as it sounds, and then we'll try to dial it back, and and then maybe try to look in between. All right. So if it was this sorcerous business here with a night king who put spells on the watch and tried to breed with this half other or all other woman and tried to sacrifice to the others. The only knowledge, the only example we have of sacrificing the others is Craster that I know of, and that's giving up your children. But I don't even know, could they have children? Could this corpse queen, this woman with cold as ice skin who sounds undead and shiny blue star eyes, doesn't sound like... This doesn't sound like a match that could produce children, <laughs> but, you know, and it, and it sounds more like Stannis giving his, when he gave her his seed, he gave her his soul as well. He's, when this was first read, it started to sound, it sounds like Stannis, like quite a bit because uh, he's at the wall. He gave his soul to her, like parts of him seem, he seems to be aging because of the time he slept with her and, and the sh- shadow baby, but Mel Sutter doesn't have blue eyes. Her, and she's hot to the touch. So that some of this doesn't work well at all with that. Some of it fits quite nicely, but some of it doesn't. And, and Stannis didn't really take over the watch. He, you could argue that he's pushing the watch around a lot. Like he's telling John what to do, but he doesn't give them direct orders. He just kind of blusters. It's like, damn it, you're taking too long. Make you better choose a Lord Commander tonight. Or I'm, you know, he doesn't tell them who to choose, but he's, you need to choose someone. So you could see how someone would say he took over. You could say hey, he's proclaimed himself king of the wall, even though he, that's probably pushing too far. Stannis wouldn't say that he has. Uh, yeah, you're right. Stannis sure. ha- and Stannis has really blue eyes, so it's uh, like these elements are there. The original Night King was a Stark, supposedly, according to Old Nan, which is a kind of a a lesson, a moral, a morality lesson, or a tale about you know power gone wrong, or that just Starks aren't all good guys. Or there's a lot of a lot of things you can glean from that. I don't want you to lose your train of thought, but these parallels are drawn to Stannis. Could you draw any parallels to John? Well, that's the next choice, yeah. Because John being undead, it's like he's got some of these elements too. He, if he becomes king of the North, then people could say he was king of the Wall. Like it'd be pretty easy to say he ruled the the watch in ways they didn't want to be ruled. He's making them ally with the wildlings and he's allying with Stannis. You could easily see someone from afar saying he's made himself king. 
he's ruling. Ygritte be his corpse queen? Uh, maybe. I mean, she's been gone for so long. I'm not sure that works. But uh, Melisandre's going to be associated with him as well. If she brings him back to life, maybe that's the connection. Yeah. His name being banned forever is really interesting. That might be political. Like you said, uh, the fact that it was a Stark, that might be something that the Starks wanted everybody to forget. <laughs> they haven't, considering old Nan still knows. So who was this person? If she's a corpse queen in the supernatural sense, then she was probably some product of the others, which is also is a little curious because we have yet to see a female other. <laughs> if they are taking children, then they can't breed on their own, which is a, a fairly re regular thing in ancient myths, like a lot of ancient fairy type beings from Celtic myth or what have you have to steal human children they can't breed on their own. They're all female or they're all male or they're all this. So they have to. So that's the thing from myth that George could be borrowing from. But the supernatural stuff, it, it, it does. I wouldn't say it dead ends, but it, it leaves us with a lot of questions we can't answer. And Melisandre has it. There's issues with applying the nice queen stuff to Melisandre because of, I mean, it works as a bride thing because a bride doesn't have to be literal. It could be lover or close confidant or just as someone that a man and woman spend a lot of time behind closed doors, people are going to talk and assume that they're doing it. So is this, a, is this a power grab or is this a something else? Well, let's turn it around. Let's look at it. Let's look at the mundane version of this. Let's say, what would it look like if it was something else? Okay, so a Stark Lord, who's his elected Lord Commander, he, for whatever reason, maybe just a power grab, maybe it's, maybe it's like this. Maybe he discovered some awful problem. He's like, we have to stop the others. I, and only I know, like a Lovecraft situation <laughs> where only the protagonist sees the danger that all of humanity is in and it makes them look crazy because they're trying to save people. And it's a real threat that the readers slash viewers can see and agree with, but no one else knows it. So they seem wildly insane to everyone else. So maybe the, we have a situation where a Stark took it upon themselves to try to save the world and it looked bad to everyone else. Maybe this corpse queen was also a good guy. Maybe it was just he married a lady of House Dustin. That's where I, we, we where this started off. We were going to talk about that. So where we circled around the supernatural to come to this. That fits, right? It would fit pretty well. If he was a human being and he didn't marry a supernatural being, then he could have married a, a, a corpse queen from the Barrowlands, just who was just a person with that nickname. And imagine if she was at least perceived to be particularly cold-hearted. Oh, you know, yeah. Which, whether she was arrogant or just, uh, again, maybe painted in a bad light because people, like the Yoko Ono thing I was saying before, maybe she wasn't that bad, but people just wanted to hate on her for one reason or another. And She was someone to blame. She's a scapegoat because they didn't want to blame yeah. their beloved beetle or their beloved Stark <laughs> yeah. in this case. <laughs> Beetles and goats what? right now? <laughs> Do we know what the, if the watch at that time, because he was only the 13th Lord Commander, yeah. so it hadn't been around for as long. Do we know if they had the same vows? Was he breaking a rule by marrying this woman? We even? don't know. This may, there's a very strong theory. That's a really good point, Sean. There is a, there's a theory that's been around for quite a while. This is the incident that started that. This is what. This is why they had. This is yeah. why they have those vows that you can't take a wife or have children or do anything other than focus on the threat. Have the Night's Watch focus on it. The, there's lots of other examples of this, like institutional reforms to make sure the Night's Watch is just focused on that problem. Don't, don't give them the new gift. Don't let them focus on farming and fishing. We don't need them doing that. We, let's let, we'll give them their food. We don't need them worrying about that. Just focus on the threat. We'll give you your food. You know, uh, but over time, you know, things happen 
people don't give them enough food. <laughs> the, the Targaryens interfere and like, actually, I think this would work better if they had more land. You know, it's like, actually, we've been doing this for 7,000 years. Maybe you should just let us to handle that. <laughs> but no. So let's look at Lady Dustin as our example of what a corpse queen from metaphorical sense. We, we've looked at supernatural. We've looked at the way people would describe it. But let's look at like a thematic, let's check into the thematic resonance here. And what is a person without love? What is a person without human connection? What, what is a person that lives for bitterness and revenge? That's Lady Dustin. She's all those things. She doesn't have a prospect of intimacy because of Westerosi society left her. It's improper for her to remarry. Or if she were to remarry, she would lose her power. She wouldn't be Lady Dustin anymore because she wasn't a Dustin by birth. She was a Riswell by birth. So she's trapped in power. If she does anything human, she loses her power. She's what Mary Mazdor said. What is life when all else is gone? She was married. She was happy. She had a relationship with Brandon before that. And she liked that. But then her lord goes off to fight in the war and doesn't come back. He dies. She had, a, she had six months or so of married life. And that's all she's going to get her entire life. That's their only like relationship, her only intimate relationship she's ever have in her entire life was that six months. That's it. She gets nothing else. Of course, you're going to be bitter. Of course, you're going to, that's going to hurt. That's going to sting. It's, it's, it's going to beat you down. She's prematurely gray. can understand why, right? People think she's old. She's not that old. She's in like her thirties. And Consider as well the imagery surrounding her as a character. One of the very few scenes we have with her is in a crypt, <laughs> the crypts of Winterfell. Mm -hmm. It's like the most like drawn out scene with her where we get to know her best. She's literally <laughs> in a graveyard, like underground graveyard. She's a good example of just the, the trap of power, I think. I think she'd be happier if she just gave up ruling Barrowton, but maybe not. Maybe she would just be just like murdered or something. Like her fear of what would happen to her without her power is not just something in her head. So it's an interesting example of how power can trap you. It may be, it can be a force that enables you to survive. It can be something that is vital for survival. But in this case, it's like a drug. It's like a, I don't know, a lot of different metaphors you could use here, but it's not good. <laughs> to be fair, because I also have the thought that, you know, well, if she really wanted intimacy, she could just let her power go. Just, you know, someone else take control, pass it on to the next male heir or whatever else. But one, it's, it might be hard to have that vision when you're living through it. At what mm. point do you decide to do that? Especially when she doesn't only have power, she has responsibility. It's true. Right? She does. You're right. There are people around her that she's grown up with and works with and, and feels obliged to, has relationships and maybe, I don't know what contracts, agreements, et cetera. You know, she's taking care of these people in this city and it might not be that easy to just let it all go to some, it might be yeah. someone like Robert, just some person she knows is going to screw everything up. I'll just she knows who have would, a husband that loves yeah. me and deal with this myself. She knows who would take over after her. She's like, we can't have that. <laughs> you know, yeah. We can't have him yeah. take over. That would be bad. But uh, you're right in theory and maybe entirely. I'm not entirely sure she's that type of person maybe she just doesn't care. To me, she seems like the thing that really drives her is getting revenge. You know, I'm, I'm sure she, there's other things she cares about, but this is what we've been presented. And for all we know, she doesn't give a crap about what happens to Barrowton after she's gone. She might be one of those people, but she might care a lot. You're, I'm not saying yeah. she doesn't. I'm just saying that that it's part of her hasn't internal, come out. 
it's weird the internal things that can go on with someone that otherwise seem normal or good or yeah. positive or even crazy or weird or bad. Sometimes they have some underlying good thing they're trying to really accomplish. But incidentally, I wanted to ask, help me fully understand this, if this is too much of a tangent. Why did Lady Dustin spill all this out to Theon? Well, at the end of the chapter, she says, you didn't hear any of this. You know, he's all right. He, the reason is she wants Roost. She, she knows he's going to talk. She wants these right, things to right. get to. She, she does want him to talk. She, but why does she? She just wants Roost to be reaffirmed in his trust for her. Well, why does she? No, no, yes, so because Roost knows that she's only with him because she hates the Starks. So she just reaffirmed right. how much she hated the Starks in that scene by saying, "I'm going to okay. eat Ned's. I'm going to capture Ned's bones." I hate this. Like she confronts Theon. He's like, "Why do you hate the Starks so much?" Because 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 I couldn't be one. He's like, "Now he's like, that's see, we have something in common." <laughs> but she she also is frustrated, if not hates the phrase. Yeah. And so maybe she's worried that Roos questions her loyalty. So this is a way to firm it up. Yeah, I because guess. it's yes, exactly. Because it's it's it's, it's indirect evidence, which is the kind that looks more straightforward to someone like Roos. He's like, so what did he? How did she seem? He's like, oh, she seemed like she was talking. She's all this anti-Stark stuff. And he's like, good. That's what I want to hear. You know, it, it, it'll yeah. But how many levels is she, what level is she on? Well, she's Could on she level team. She's on herself. conspiring against the phrase, and so she's doing this to make sure Roos doesn't suspect her. She wants to. Come out of this is alive. She cahoots with Manderly is what I'm wondering. I, no, I think no. what happens is she's in this to come out alive. She knows that the she she's okay. pretty sure that the North is going to overthrow the Boltons, but if they don't, she's on the right side. She's ready to jump ship because she knows she's. That's why she said they love the Starks, and she also knows that's not Arya. She's like 100. We yeah, know that. Yeah, I suspect that. She's like, I will take possession of this girl until the time of the wedding. She's had her in her possession the whole time. So there's no way she didn't question her and figure it out. So that's 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 okay. pretty much off the table. Like that I'm 100% on that she knows that's not Arya. So she knows that the real Arya is out there or that there's other Starks out there or that this is just going to fall apart. There's too many flimsy things holding this Bolton uh, ascendancy up. Like Stannis being out there is one of them. Like if Stannis beats him, that's one other thing, you know. Ramsey's a loose cannon, which it's also she has been clear about not liking, which might yes. further want her to ingratiate herself to Roos. Yeah, because so. she won't follow Ramsey. If Roos dies, she's going to change sides. That's been made very clear because she's aggressively told Ramsey that. He's like, he's like, I might hate her. I'm going to burn. I'm going to skin her. And he's like, well, then you wouldn't have the Dustins or Riswells as allies. That would be the most expensive pair of boots ever, you idiot. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but he says it in like his, his gnome, like, would be very expensive yeah. like it was very calm like just doesn't doesn't react to the the brutality of the statement just yeah well actually as a matter of fact that would be a very expensive pair of boots you know so <laughs> yeah so it is really interesting she's trying to she is doing a bit of a tightrope walk she can see that she's probably on the losing side but there's definitely a chance Roos wins but she wants to do it in a way that gives her an out i, I presume that if she does turn on Roos, or, or rather that when she turns on Ramsey, if Roos is killed and then she turns on Ramsey, she's got a way to do it that's going to be very visible, like very known. So it's, it's, it's like Tywin very loudly showing what side he was on after being in the middle all throughout Robert's Rebellion. You're like, what side are you on? Oh, you just murdered all the Targaryens. Okay, we know what side you're on. <laughs> it's like, and, that, and, and Tywin said that. He's like, I had to make sure we sat out the war. We had to make our loyalty extra clear because we sat on the sidelines for so long. We couldn't afford to hedge. Everybody knows we're not going to go with the Targaryens now because we murdered them. They're not going to take us as allies. Same thing, like, I imagine Lady Dustin's going to do something dramatic to show what side she's really on. You know, say, look, I was just, 
waiting to stab them in the back. You know, <laughs> I was waiting to get those Boltons when they gave me a chance. Or if the Boltons win, I've been on your side the whole time. I think it's standard, like, to stay on the winning side, be prepared to jump ship if you don't, you know. Another imagery moment from the crypt scene with her is Theon notices that her face is hardening with every step. <laughs> which is like mm, the slow <laughs> like darkening the like the lo- the losing of humanity the losing of your soul the cl- being closer to death turning to stone and turning to stone brings up another undead woman lady stoneheart i mean talk about bitterness no prospect of human connection a life without love like she's far worse in that regard than Lady Dustin. Also, they both hate the phrase. That's something we have in common. But Lady Stoneheart does not hate the Starks. <laughs> She's not want Ned's bones eaten by dogs. But it is something to think about. I don't think the Corpse Queen legend refers to Catelyn. Not at all. No, 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 no. But I do think that attributes that she has are relevant here. Uh, maybe just in a thematic way, not just a supernatural way. But maybe that too. And you mentioned John. So yeah, let's talk about John as a possibility as well. Yeah, undead, like corpse king, right? Undead corpse king, eh, maybe. If like- John does become king, then Lady Stoneheart could be the corpse queen regent. <laughs> 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 nice. <laughs> and the idea that he has used strange sorceries to make the brothers do follow his will, you know, and he's he's taking the watch in a direction he's never gone before. See how that... That fits what John is doing in a dramatic sort of way, like an overly flowery description of it. And one more note about a woman was his downfall. It's a recurring feature of, of stories that sometimes the woman takes an un, unbalanced amount of blame. Mad Donnell, the story of Mad Donnell Lawson is a good example of all this. Oh, she's doing black magic and sending bats to steal children and bathing in blood. And we've talked before about how a lot of that is probably just exaggeration and probably where there weren't any bats and the the bathing in blood was probably red hair dye. So it's another example of where this logic is not a direct connection to night queen or corpse queen, but it is an example of how these figures tend to be viewed within this world. And we need to use the same deconstruction that we use for that that type of character that we use for the for the corpse queen to say, okay, well, these are the things that people tend to believe about women, about powerful women. So we need to make sure we're not just falling for that. You know, what else is going on here? So that's part of what deconstruction is when you're looking at a myth or a legend or a, a popular view. How do they normally view these things? And what biases do they normally have? And we need to maybe try to remove some of that from the equation so we can get a clearer picture of what's really going on. Let's talk about the fall of Night's King versus the fall of Ares, as discussed by Robert and Ned, and then we'll bring it back to this. Seven hells. Someone had to kill Ares, Robert said, reining his mount to a sudden halt beside an ancient barrow. If Jamie hadn't done it, it would have been left for you or me. We were not sworn brothers of the Kingsguard, Ned said. Yeah, it's interesting to compare the role of Night's Watch and Kingsguard and Lord Commander versus King, something we can maybe get into in more depth another time, because that would be a little off off topic here. But it is worth pointing out that the Night's Watch vow is to the realm. The Lord Command the King's Guard vow is to the king, which is different. So they're not they, the Night's Watch don't take a vow to the Lord Commander. They just take a vow to serve the realm. But what did the Queen do in all this? What was her role? This is what I'm trying to get at. What happened to her when Night's King was brought down? Was she just brought down also? Was she killed? Was she just a person sent back home? Like if she was just a you know, like a Lady Dustin type, would they just send her to live with her father or her family again? Or did they kill her? Or if she was actually a product of the others? Well, and I have no idea. In that case, did she flee back to the north 
from when she came? She still roams the caverns beneath the wall. Whoa, that's She's a good down one. there with the Grommold. What were those two guys? Yeah, and Grendel and Gorn. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Gendel and Gorm. Gendel and Gorm. Wallace and, and Gromit, is that what you're going to say? <laughs> Wallace and Gromit and Gendel and Gorm. <laughs> <laughs> That's another one where we don't, we don't, we didn't set that question up to give you an answer because we obviously don't have it, but it is a worthy thing to think about. Well, yeah, what happened to her? And is that what we're looking at? When we apply the Knight's Queen, Corpse Queen legend to current figures and see where it fits, think about that as well. If John this figure, then what's going to happen to Melisandre? Does that tell us that she gets forgotten or that she is killed throughout this or something like that? So that's that's where what I'm getting at. When the legends leave things out, but we find a way to connect the legend to a current character, the part the legend is leaving out is probably the fate of that current character, or at least where, or at least in that general vicinity. So little deconstruction technique that we like to use here at History of Westeros podcast. We're not the only ones, but it's good to share. We feel like Melisandre doesn't fit some of this corpse bride story, but maybe it's the difference in ice and fire, you know, mm-hmm. like the way she doesn't fit or it's the, the opposite hot and cold, you know, yeah. She does fit um, in the in a, in a mirror image sense. And, yeah, yeah. She has red eyes instead of blue, and she's hot to the touch instead of cold. And worth bringing up, but now that uh, since you bring up Melisandre again, that Austin Flowers made sure to note the ice Melisandre action figure that George commissioned. Do you remember that? That <laughs> oh, George yeah. commissioned, mm. you know, like a little tabletop, like figurine, like action figures, that type thing. But he had it painted in ice themed colors, not fire. Like specifically, he commissioned mm. that they do that. George had his own night fink, night fink, night queen figurine. <laughs> yes, and Austin Flowers adds on to that and says, George just flips between exothermic and endothermic female figures. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> the Buildings of Brandon episode is out. It's for patrons only. We have now a growing list of episodes that are for patrons only. So if you want to consider signing up, well, we've increased your incentive. This there one are is- another scripted episode with subtitles. Yes, that was exactly what I was going to say. Oh, great. <laughs> but it's subtitled, so yes. you know. Shea puts extra work into these. They're getting even stronger every time. I just had a thought. Uh, Melisandre, I wonder if she will go down as the Ash Queen. <laughs> oh, the Ash Queen. Another sort of derogatory turn on what she was in life. So, you know, like it, Danny. You know, if she thought poorly of in the future, you know. Oh, yeah, Danny could too, yeah. <laughs> Christina Kay says tons of cultures actually buried their dead under their houses. Yeah, that's true. And she says 50 years is the time where something is considered an artifact. I didn't know there was an official metric they use. Yeah. Yeah. She also says, you know what I don't get? Why doesn't Winterfell use the river more to get back and forth to White Harbor? And there were some answers to that in responses. First, a Gerald Garcia, a name I always like seeing. I just appreciate the pun, uh, <laughs> said, do we know how far upriver the White Knife is possible even? There might be rapids or something. And of course, Nina came in with the answer for mm-hmm. us all. Alisan's party sailed up the White Knife from White Harbor to the river's rapids, then proceeded overland to Winterfell, which does confirm that there are rapids at some point that makes the river not... So there's uh, a traversable area, and then you go up that far. Yeah, we don't know how far upriver they can go, okay. but there is a reason why they can't just go straight down the river as, as a nice, easy way. It doesn't seem like well, that, that works very well. That does make sense. That does yeah. make a lot of sense. Cool. Well, good. That's great. I, I love to see that. The, the chat asked a question and answered it. And then we get to share it with the rest of y'all who are listening, since not all of you can see the chat. 
Yassine says, well, yeah, everybody only remembers the biggest and most eye-attracting landscape. As an example, everyone knows Egypt for its pyramids, while only a few people know that it's also the case in Sudan. They have pyramids in a greater number than Egypt, but there's le- but they're less grandiose and remarkable and thus partially forgotten. You know what? That's as an incredible example because I did not know that. So it really just proves his point right there. There's more pyramids in Egypt in Sudan than Egypt, but most uh, people don't know that. Also, notable people in the chat also pointed out that Sudan at one point would have been part of Egypt. Oh, as, yeah. as, you know, so it's notable. Worth worth pointing out there, I think, as well. Right that, on. Uh, yeah, that's cool. Hmm. Darnest Dame adding on to the idea that the Knights King was the event that created the vow in the first place or maybe expanded the vow. That's another possibility that the vow was added to. There was a vow, but they needed to add more clauses to it. <laughs> like, okay, let's rewrite that vow. Because Dornstein points out, yeah, the Black Gate only requiring the second part makes me think that the original vow and the part about wives, lands, and children was added later on. Excellent evidence there. Yeah, because when Sam says the vow to open the Black Gate for Bran and Mira and Jojen... It's not the exact same vow that is spoken at the Grove of Nine. So that is very telling. So it does it does very strongly imply that the vow is changed or at, well added to, which is a change, but not not completely changed. But it could also be you just only need part of the vow. You know, but I favor this theory over that. <laughs> you know, it makes me think a lot of uh, our Buildings of Brandon episode where we talk a lot about how sometimes things are, you know, they're not completely remodeled or, or rechanged, but they're just added to. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and the Black Gate is uh, a part of the Buildings of Brandon episode. We yeah, we talk about it a good bit. Yeah, we, we try to talk about like other magical wards and like looking at them as a whole. Like, okay, we've got one on the Cave of Bloodraven. We've got something on Storm's End. We've got this the Black Gate and then, yeah, go from there. I was reminded by something in the the chat from, or a comment, one or the other, from last week's episode by Dornis Dame again, by the way. The parallel between the state of disrepair and unmanned castles at the north and south of the north. Oh, yeah. Both the wall is falling apart and Mokalen. Neither one of them are fully manned or they're in state of disrepair, but Mm. the, the state of defense of the north and south of the north has fallen apart. Neither of them have been tested much recently. Yeah, then Mo Kalen is in the last line of defense against the Andals anymore, and it's just the wildlings, the free folk in the north, so that's not, yeah, you don't need the the full might of the wall to stop them. Good point, yeah, very good, Dornish Dame and Sean. Well point. Okay, let's go to House Dustin, and this first quote is going to keep us in the supernatural realm for now. The rusted crown upon the arms of House Dustin derives from their claim that they are themselves descended from the first king and the barrow kings who ruled after him. The old tales recorded in Kennet's Passages of the Dead claim that a curse was placed on the great barrow that would allow no living man to rival the first king. This curse made these pretenders to the title grow corpse-like in their appearance, and it sucked away their vitality and life. This is no more than legend, to be sure, but that the Dustins share blood and descend from the Barrow Kings of old seems sure enough. Okay, so consider that the curse. Again, we should consider it as a real thing. Consider the possibility that it's legit and consider the possibility that it's metaphorical or that it's political or some combination of the three or maybe even other things. So uh, the first thing I thought of when this was thinking about the Stark Crips and... But those would be bones and dust. I mean... Yeah, that's not it's not rising. You know, you think about the dead rising during some I think there would event. be 
What's that? Do you know what I think there might be? What? Dusty old bones. Dusty old bones. Full of green dust. <laughs> it also reminds me of the idea of growing corpse-like and having your vitality and life sucked away is very remi- much reminds me of the Undying Ones. The House of Undying. Like, they were all papery thin and they were definitely trying to suck Danny's vitality out. And Yeah. So we have this sort of concept established in this world, but the corpse queen, really, that fits this pretty well too, doesn't it? Like this concept, if we're again sticking to the supernatural side of it, the idea of a corpse queen growing corpse-like in their appearance. I mean, that's that's very straightforward, I think, in a lot of ways. Made me think of Bruce Bolton, by the yeah, way. Yeah, so what, what, did, what, what was your thought here that he's just, there's a similar kind of thing that he's just losing humanity, he doesn't have... Yeah. Yeah. Gaunt and emaciated. I did my vision of him and he's leached all the people time. even suspected there's vampire theories <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Yeah, right. <laughs> like he's not even from the Barrowlands. I don't know if he's rivaling the first king, but you know, maybe he intends to and the curse knows it. I don't know. Maybe similar, by the way, if Stannis mm-hmm. his lifeblood is being drained and he, he is older rivaling him. the power of the first king and is in the north now. I don't know. Yeah, no, those are good. Those are good ideas. I mean, it's it's it might be more of a general statement by George on what happens to people like this. You sac- you're sacrificing your humanity when you reach for great power like this. You see it happen in U.S. presidents, by the way. Look at any picture of a U.S. president the year before they were elected and the, <laughs> the year after their eight term, their yeah, eight years in look, service. Yeah. They go from spry to done yeah. you know I was say, <laughs> That's a tough there was a, I'm re-watching Veep and there was a joke about that exact thing <laughs> yeah they're making fun of Selena Meyer <laughs> but this is what she'll look like when she's done in office and like make her look all I remember I I'm, I'm watching I'm going through Veep that's why, I'm, that's why I'm rewatching it, you, but I'm watching it through episode to episode. That's why I'm rewatching it exactly because you you told me you were watching it, and I was like, "What? What is Sean watching?" I'm like, "I want to be <laughs> current with him." And so, yeah, it's just a good rewatch. But yeah, <laughs> the other thing to be wary of with curses and and wording and things like this is how George has shown that a penchant for semantics in spots like this. So. There's two opportunities here. The old tales recorded in Kenneth's Passage of the Dead claim that a curse was placed on the Great Power that would allow no living man. So living man or living man? Like a woman? Yes. Or living man like John, who isn't living, or Stoneheart. Which of these, like, where is the semantic wiggle room here? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so there's, it could be either one. Either the man could be in quotes, or it could be a woman, like like the prince, princess, the prince that was promised, that whole business. Or like this, where it's living man. So John, I mean, if John is maybe going to be named King of the North. So that would also be quite fitting as a parallel to reaching for the power of the first man, especially if there's people that are trying to prop him up to be the king, to be the king. It's like, hey, you're Rhaegar's son. You should be the king, not just king of the north. That would certainly be on the level of claiming dominion over all first men, if not more so, trying to be the king on the Iron Throne. Now, whether John will reach for that or not is something to be seen, and whether other people will push him for it also remains to be seen. But the, the concept, I think, holds a lot of water here as a comparison. But curses on graves. Let's talk about it from more of a like a political, cynical angle. Nina says, this reminds me of the real world legendary tradition of curses being placed on graves, promising terrible fates to those who disturb the corpses of the people inside. Any given culture around the world which buries its dead 
in specific Mark's tombs probably has a story or multiple stories about graves and curses. Yeah, it's a ubiquitous style of legend or story. The grave of Ivar the Boneless, for example, was supposed to be protected by a curse that any invader who landed where he was buried would be defeated, a curse which was supposedly broken when William the Conqueror discovered his grave and had him dug up and his body burned, allowing him to conquer England. That probably didn't happen. Like, it did happen, but it didn't really happen. Meaning, William Conquer dug up some grave and burned somebody and declared it to be Ivar the Boneless. This is my interjection. Yeah. Nina continues here. Even in the modern era, a legend arose that Soviet excavation of Timur's tomb activated a curse which led to the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in World War II. I mean, come on, people. But that really did happen. Like, people really did talk about this. Nina's right to point this out. Like, Timur was uh, one of the... Mongol, wasn't he one of the Mongol leaders? I forget. Anyway, it doesn't matter who he was. And this, in this term, the point is he had a, he was a powerful leader and emptying his tomb got people to think there was a curse. Also compare this barrel curse to the Iron Throne, Nina says, which is said to reject or even kill those deemed unworthy to sit on it. That curse has been far from consistent. However, while most would probably agree that Joffrey, Magor, and Aerys II did not deserve to be king, and she personally thinks Viserys I was pretty terrible too. Rhaenyra's succession was at best a legal debate, and the throne apparently did nothing to other bad kings like Aegon II and Aegon IV. So the curse didn't hold out, didn't do anything to them. So if the curse is not real, then this may have been simply propaganda, encouraged if not outright, started by the Dustins or other leading families in the area in order to preserve their preeminence, in order to prevent conquest from foreign families. That's a great way to sort of like extra line of defense against conquest from the outside is, oh, all these graves are here. Only we <laughs> can tend to these graves properly. Anyone else comes in here in the grave, the dead will rise or the curse will be unleashed on the foreign conquerors. Pretty, pretty decent, like, uh, thing to keep out invaders or it might give the locals a little more confidence or a little more, like, connection to their homeland. Nina also says the Dustins and or families of the Barrelands might have grown wary of the Starks, who from the earliest days enjoyed the legendary clout of Brandon the Builder and status as the central family standing against the others in the Long Night. If they wanted to prevent Stark expansionism, they needed just a strong mythological foundation. Even Brandon the Builder had to bow to the first king as the most senior of all Westerosi kings. And if the first king said no one else could exceed him, well, even the Starks theoretically had to obey that, assuming that was the actual state of affairs. So that's a, that was a really good passage by Nina there. A lot of good points there. Yeah, it's interesting to consider that maybe for a while the Starks were, not, maybe not vassals, but had, pay, had to pay homage to the Barrow Kings. It's entirely possible that was the state of affairs for a while. Maybe before the Long Night. That may have been the, how it was before there was the Great Reset, where the Starks had their opportunity to say, look, we're important too because of our role in this great in this thing that, that threatened us all. We're the heroes of this conflict. The Barrowlands didn't emerge from the Long Night with any sort of special acclaim that we've been told about. So... The Starks, really, their profile was massively raised by it. So, yeah, it's entirely possible they were the big dogs before. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that, in fact. So, I like that. It says Maesters doubt the curse. <laughs> I never thought about how the fact that that curse might be something that Lady Dustin likes as a, as a thing about her people. And so, it's another, and Lady Dustin hates Maesters. Maybe that's one of the, <laughs> just one of the reasons she doesn't. One more notch against them. Yeah, yeah. it's like, <laughs> shut up about the curse. Shut up about the curse. <laughs> <laughs> I really, really like the the sigil. It's super cool. The, it's rusted, crossed long axes under a crown. The rust as a detail is really neat to me. 
they're sacrificing a little bit of prestige because rust isn't, you know, it's not fancy, but it, the rust is meant to imply how old they are. It's, this is how long we've been in charge. And it's a really, it's a really neat thing to imply aging. I've never seen rust like used as a plus before <laughs> like that at sea. Yeah. You know, it's usually a negative, but that's pretty cool. Their castle is called Barrow Hall. House Stout's Keep is less than a mile away. We're back in Barrowton now, of course, but this is House Dustin, so we're talking about. Recall notably that Ramsey had a party at House Stout's Keep less than a mile from Barrow Hall, as we said, because Lady Dustin wouldn't allow him in Barrow Hall. So this is getting back to what we were discussing earlier briefly. And remember, the, and this is also where we need to point out the connection between these two families. She blames Ramsey for killing Domerick, and she liked Domerick. Domerick was her nephew. Remember, Roos's first wife is unnamed and they didn't have any kids, but his second wife was Bethany Riswell. So that's, yeah, so that's a connection. So that's part of why these, another reason why they're connected and why they're allies. Like Lady Dustin was a Riswell before she married yeah. in the house Dustin. Right, her, right? Her, her, her lord husband was the Lord Dustin, and he, but he died in, at the Tower of Joy. So that's another little angle here. You have the West Side Barrowlands, watching Stark and Bolton go at it. And if she's thinking back to the old times, this is like the old days when the different powers of the North were going at it. And she's like, how can the Barrowlands benefit from the Starks and the Boltons going at each other's throats? Hmm, she's like, yeah, West Side. We'll do our thing. You guys can screw each other over. Lysa, similarly, a jaded woman sitting on the sidelines where other people battle it out. In charge. In charge because her husband died and, and you know, mm-hmm. doesn't have full control and... Yeah, you're totally right. The difference, one of the major differences there is that she can marry and hold her power, whereas Lady Dustin can't. And the reason why is because she has a son. Her son is the future Lord of the Vale, whereas Lady Dustin never had a son with, with Lord Dustin. So that's why her, uh, that's why if she remarried, it would re- quote unquote. You can't re- now. Yeah. <laughs> talk about Corpse Bride. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about the thousand-year war that took 200 years. This is the war that actually saw the end of the Barrow Kings and led to their submission to the Kings of Winter. Quote. Historical proof exists for the war between the Kings of Winter and the Barrow Kings to their south, who styled themselves the Kings of the First Men and claimed supremacy over all First Men everywhere, even the Starks themselves. Runic records suggest that their struggle, dubbed the Thousand Years' War by the Singers, was actually a series of wars that lasted closer to 200 years than a thousand, ending when the last Barrow King bent his knee to the King of Winter and gave him the hand of his daughter in marriage. Right on. His, he, he says gave the hand of his daughter in marriage, like he opened her tomb, cut her hand off, and gave it. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. So maybe the Barrow Kings were the aggressors. That's something that I think maybe a lot of people haven't considered is like the Starks gradually conquered the North. But in this case, it sounds like the Barrow Kings may have been the ones that that got it all started. After all, it doesn't say that the Starks claimed supremacy over them. It says the Barrow Kings claimed supremacy over first men everywhere, all of them, including the Starks. So yeah, that doesn't that kind of imply that the Barrow Kings maybe made the first move or... He who cast the first stone, that kind of thing. Is it, do you interpret it the same way, Sean? The first burial stone? The first burial stone. <laughs> Again, as we said earlier, some several things imply how it might have gone, that the Starks were more about preserving, where the Barrow Kings were more about asserting. Mm-hmm. And so if the Barrow Kings did assault Winterfell or the Starks or whatever multiple times and failed because they would have been on the 
it would have odds would have been against them. You know, you have a little more ability as a, on the defense that they would have been like, especially over a series of generations, the the kind of loss of resources and people start to stack up. That Winterfell starts to just be stronger, and and maybe eventually they're like enough's enough, we're going to attack you, and we have a greater advantage after our incremental uh, increases over generations of your failures, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Might have been more accepted by the people in general, right? The the people of the Barrel Lands might have been a little more reluctant to go to battle and lose again against the Starks, or the people where the Starks might have been a little easier to rally their people to finish this once and for all, you know. Yeah, and one, I like, you set me up there nicely for the next point, which is that if a lot of the North viewed the Starks as in a, in a positive light, they might not like the way the Barrow Kings were treating them, and that might make them take the side of the Starks, which would be the kind of domino effect that the Barrow Kings were not looking for. Okay, we're going to try to divide and conquer our neighbors, and so they go try to pick on the Starks, and people are like, hey, don't pick on the Starks. They were, you know, they're the ones like watching the North. Like, hey, don't, like, that's... They get some indignant, you know, they might, or the Starks should be like, hey, look at their, they're coming after us. Like they may, they may use that to, to bring the allies on. It may not be the allies that immediately leap to their aid, but they may maybe use that as a, as an argument to bring more allies on. And it may not need them just like, hey, we're the protectors of the North. Like, hey, they're trying to kill, to conquer us so they can conquer all of you. It might, that also, that argument also could work pretty well. Imagine lands, people and lords of lands in between the two, when the Starks demand taxes, if you will, however you want to phrase that. What they do is they take grain and store it and redistribute it when it's when it's winter time. Mm. Whereas the Barrow Kings, when they take their tax loot, they raise an army and go and attack the Starks. Yeah, like the people paying those taxes. Eventually, hey, you know we like what the Starks are doing <laughs> with our our grain more than what you're doing with. Yeah, the that's a great call, Sean, because the Starks built Wintertown. It's a refuge for people in winter. That's just. I mean, we don't know for sure that Wintertown existed in the old days, but it probably did. I mean, it says some form of it. It yeah. seems to be the mo of the story. I mean, again, if you're gonna, if you have, you don't get to choose your king usually, but if you get a chance to support possible kings, you would support the ones that are actually protecting the realm, or or at least the ones that are doing more of that than the ones that are just trying to exert dominance. Yeah. Excellent point. And here, here's here's a way that it could go the other way, though. Nina points out that since the Blackwoods need to be considered here, it may have been that the that after Winterfell defeated the Blackwoods and sent them back, sent them packing south, that was an alarm to the Barrowkings, and that's what made them make a move. They're like, "Oh, the Starks are getting too powerful. They've just overthrown one of the regional powers," and it's that same alarm, same alarm bells that we were just describing from the other angle, where if the Barrowkings swallow two of the other kingdoms they're going to be too powerful similar thing here Uh oh the starks are getting too powerful with the blackwoods but that is possibly something that happened long before like it's possible the blackwood business happened before the wall was even built it's that it's a real it's really hard placing when the blackwoods were in the north and there's a small chance they weren't at all but i i tend to accept that they were so nina suggests that Maybe the Starks were eager and hungry for power and dominance, just like the other ones. Maybe it was just as simple as that, and they just been more successful. And the Barrow Kings were like, "We better. It's it's now or never. We need to challenge them before they get stronger." 
they could look at a map and be like, well, the Starks could easily claim territory to the north and the east that we don't have access to. So if given time, they're definitely going to get stronger than us because they have more land to claim. Something like that. I'm not saying that's definitely what happened. Just, just tossing out ideas for how it may have been at the time. And this is a long period of time. This is a 200 years of engagement, right? As it says, well, it says a thousand years, but the maesters say it's probably more like 200 years. So there had to be periods of peace within that span. There had to be new reasons for the war to flare up. Just your predecessor, and it could just be something as simple as your predecessors tried to conquer us, so we're, you know, revenge. Or still this old claim, we're the kings of the first men, we get to tell you what to do. Or that last war ground us down to nothing and now we're strong enough to fight again, so let's do it. <laughs> you know, something like that. Over a thousand years or even a hundred years, you'll have a series of different leaders which might have different ambitions and yeah. mentalities That's and true. levels of resources and such that would play out differently. Yeah, like you're dealing with, unless again, we're dealing with super long lifespans, which there's not any particular reason to suspect that here. We're talking several different Stark kings and queens, several different Barrow kings and queens, different generations of families, heroes, circumstances, weather. There may have been like a really bad winter that just, we're not fighting now. <laughs> Let's go back home and wait for that. Could shut them down for several years, you know? You know, even with a really long lifespan, you know, say there was some, you know, legendary character that lived to be 200 years old. They might have had a different mentality when they were 27, as they did when they were 85, as they did when they were 140. Like at different points, they might have decided to make peace or make wars. Yeah, 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 well point, well point. So we suggested before, just to bring this back idea, this idea back around that maybe the reason that this lingered for so long is it's just so hard for one of them to either side to get a true upper hand where they can just eliminate the other entirely or, or, or get them to the point where they have to surrender. But that did eventually happen for whatever reason, whatever set of circumstances, the, the Starks won out in the end. So what did that mean? What did that do for them? It wasn't just like conquering one of these weaker kings, regional kings. This was beating the house that claimed dominion over not just the North, but over all first men. So of all the Stark conquests in the early days, this may have been the really important one, the one that kicked off all the rest. Okay, we beat the really other big power in the North. Now it's just going to be downhill from here. Eventually the Red Kings will fall. Eventually the other, whoever's left at this point, we're not even sure the Marsh King will fall because once the power of Barrington and Winterfell is combined, nothing in the North can stand up to that. So it probably really changed the outlook for the North for all time. You know, there's other ways to to beat a, a much bigger army or to take advantage like Theon, you know, like using tricks like that. But that clearly, if that was used, it didn't work in the long term. <laughs> so no one is clever as as Lan in the North. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to imagine that there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, you, it, it seems hard to imagine that it was just the Starks kept winning. Like, it would probably didn't take 200 years to resolve all this if one side was just particularly dominant. There was probably a lot of setbacks on both sides, probably a lot of, yeah, I mean, 200 years. There's so much room for, for, for back and forth. It might, if, again, if the, if, if the Starks were constantly on the defensive. If the Barrow, the Barrow Kings and their forces kept going toward Winterfell and attacking and losing, and Winterfell kept just staying back on the defense... I could see 200 years of that before finally Winterfell, okay, now's the time to go attack back. And they knew, Winterfell was wise enough to know, we can't afford to go attack them, especially if we want to be prepared for winter. We're not going to be their allies, we're not going to kneel to them, but we're going to stay here and defend our land and our people. 
and the Berlins kept going and attacking. They would have been just wearing themselves over down over time where Winterfell would have been building itself mm. and supported the people up over time. And eventually when they do go attack, they end it. You could also see them. I, I could see it playing out. Like you could that. also see them using that as a, as a way to get allies. Like, look, these guys are always trying to conquer everybody. You know, we're just the defenders. And, but really in the back of their minds are like, yeah. And then once they're gone, it's all ours. <laughs> so there's a little bit of, a little bit of cynicism, a little bit of power grabbiness in there. But at the same time, it probably is better for the North if the Starks won over the Barrow Kings. <laughs> so there's some maybe power grabby in there, but sometimes you're right that you're the better leader <laughs> than the others. <laughs> Life's funny that way. It's not so simple. So when we get to a general Northern history and we talk about the Starks, this is another thing we can, we can talk about with other regions of the North or maybe as a whole. And something I've really been inspired to do is to try to piece some of all this together, these different time frames within the North and try to construct a narrative about when these things happen, try to put them in order and describe it all like that. So I'll, I'll be working on that. We'll see what happens. So it's also important to note that the Barrow Kings bent the knee. They didn't go down fighting like during the last or say the Marsh King who actually died in battle, uh, which Nina writes, this may have been a sort of concession to the dynastic pretensions of the Barrow Kings and the part of the Starks. Compare, say, Aegon the Conqueror, who ended the royal titles of his new Stark and Lannister and Aaron vassals, like no other kings besides Aegon. But he still let them rule everything they ruled before. They just couldn't have quite as prestigious of a title. They're now high lords instead of kings. So he still lets them function much as they had been for millennia, just with new homage paid to him as their ultimate suzerain. Aegon wasn't dumb, and he knew very well the power of preserving continuity. People are used to being led by a certain family. If you can control that family, why not just keep that system in place? Otherwise, you just have to do so much work and it causes so many problems down the line, so much instability. He didn't want to turn the system on his head. He just wanted to install himself at the top of it. He wasn't trying to remake all of Westerosi society. He's just trying to maybe remake the the way it functioned at the top. Like he wasn't telling peasants how to live differently. For the most part, they were, things didn't change for them that much. But here, yeah, maybe this was an honorable surrender, like something that allowed them to preserve a little bit of pride, but definitively surrendering and putting an end to this two centuries-ish of war and creating a new world order for the North. Yeah. I like it. That makes a lot of sense. It fits really well. And, you know, uh, that's why people don't get completely wiped out a lot of times is because they want to preserve this continuity. The same thing is like, I don't want, do I want to rule the barrel lands? Wouldn't I rather have someone else do that for me and just send me some taxes and men? There's certain things, there's certain negatives to that style of control, but it is simpler, easier, generally how the feudal system works. It's, comp it's, it's common. So you'll have to teach people a new way to, to do it, you know? On some level, a lot of this is just like a, I don't know, a cost-benefit analysis. Yeah. We, we even see that. That's like a feature of, uh, of Vikings, uh, the TV show Vikings. You see a lot of times they the Vikings don't necessarily want to kill everyone. They just want land or money or whatever, and they'll just get paid off. And I think I don't think this is unique to the Vikings. I think in the world it's a common sort of a ransom that's paid to some army. Like, here's a bunch of gold or cattle or whatever it is. Please don't kill our people. Yeah. And on some level, it's easier for both the Starks and the Barrow, the people of the Barrowlands to like, wouldn't you rather just give some silver pieces to us once a year than have your people die to, to have your 
crops be destroyed, your horses killed, all this other stuff. When, when it, doesn't everyone benefit more if we stop this war and just pay us tribute? And we use the tribute to protect your people during the winter. Isn't to build more winter towns or build, yeah, yeah, build the wall a little higher or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. Like, you can see how the sensible we're all in this together arguments would be on the Stark side of things. And maybe that really, maybe that wasn't the defining factor, but it really could have been. It could have been the thing that a lot of Northern Lords were like, all right, one way you could, the time of multiple kingdoms is going away. Someday the North is going to be ruled from one place and better it be the Starks than anyone else. Certainly better than the Boltons. <laughs> the the Barrowton would be better than the Boltons. <laughs> if we had a ranking, if it was ranked choice voting, <laughs> Barrowton would not be at the bottom, but the Starks would be at the top for quite a few. With that in mind, let's move to current times, or recent times, rather, and discuss where things went. So it may have been that from here the Starks had an easy-ish time of conquering the rest of the North. But of course, we know that the Andals still never made it North, except in small amounts. They never conquered North. But over time, trade, you know, just people going to live there, Northerners going to live in the South, just people learning about different cultures, going back and forth. There's something, you know, George refers to Barrow Knights. There's Knights of the Barrowlands who live in Barrowton. Now, of course, in a city that has more Southerners in it, than the rest of the North. You'd have more of that sort of cultural estuary phenomena, kind of like White Harbor, where you have Southern and Northern mixing, because obviously Knights isn't super common in the North, but they're not uncommon either. But they're more common towards the Southern part of the North. The farther North you go, the less you see of them. And this is the reason why. You have lots of back and forth between the two regions, and that creates that a lot of common ground. I imagine George laughed at the name Barrow Knights to himself because it's Barrow, it's, it rhymes with Barrow Whites, which is you know, the Lord of Rings reference there. <laughs> Barrow Knights, Barrow Whites. So, yeah, like it's a, these are probably pretty diverse regions. I mean, considering, I mean, relatively speaking, right? The White Harbor and Barrowton and have people from all over the North and South living there, as well as just traveling through there and trading there. So, pretty cool role playing setting, I would think. Both of those places. Uh, Barrowton may be even cooler because of all the graves. White Harbor is a little fancier. There's more infrastructure there, which might be why Barrowton is cooler in that sense. You've got all these places to explore. The world is less tamed in that zone, in that region, and you, st- you still have all the access to farther away places via ship. Yeah, it's a good, it's a pretty cool, neat, neat place. Maybe not as remarked on as some of the other ones, but George does his work even on the, the places where the light doesn't shine as brightly. Now, Again, though, there's places, there's things that happen in the current times or modern times that helped Im- increase the prestige of Barrowton. Aegon I twice held court there. It's a pretty big deal, right? You, you basically have a moving court and you stay there for a while. So that's, that's the conqueror. He spent much of his post-conquest reign going from place to place, holding court, kind of as, you know, doing FaceTime, just establishing this new giant realm that he had created. But twice he went to Barrowton. That's a pretty big deal. And, and it's interesting to think about why he might have done that. One, it's just a population center. So there's just go where there's lots of people. But also, you got to think that he was trying to draw a little bit of power away from the high lords. It's, you, you get a little more power within the cities. That's, that's a traditional sort of power game thing where you have a population center 
And this is sort of what I was referring to with the castle city thing being separated before. And it's like, if, if, if someone else can establish a connection to that city over you, then you have more power over those people. And those people are a huge resource, whether you farm them for armies or taxes or both. So Aegon was, was paying attention to the population centers, it seems pretty clear, and, and maybe trying to keep them from being hyper-loyal to their overlord. Don't just blindly follow Lord Stark here. If I call for you, if it's between me and Lord Stark, if we come into conflict, don't just blindly follow the Stark. He wants some of them, maybe some of them will follow him, even though if he, if he doesn't hold court in places like Barrington and White Harbor, there's no hope that they'll fight for him. They'll just stay with the Stark. He may have specifically wanted to appeal to the people who claim descendancy from the first king. He mm-hmm. might have known they're, they're someone who he might be able to get more of an edge on, you know. That's true. Yeah, projecting that same sort of image that they associate with what a proper king should do or how they should carry themselves or what have you. Because we know Aegon had that sense of, that, or that sensibility. He was, he was pretty smart that way in, in terms of how to present himself as a ruler to get maximum effect. Lord Dustin of the early conquest reign, like around the year 50 or 60, so 30-some years after Aegon's death, he entertained Jaehaerys and Alysanne with attorney at Barrowton. And this was, this was right after the new gift business happened, right after they forced the issue of the new gift. They had this tournament. Now, it's, the tournament was noted as being a poorer thing than a lot of other ones because it's, Barrowton isn't as rich. But still, that's interesting. Like tournaments in the north are rare. Like we hear about melees in the north, but this is still another. This is more another sign of the cultural diversity of Barrowton. Several examples of Barrowton participating in major conflicts that are often more business of the south. Robert's Rebellion, of course, the north was a big part of Robert's Rebellion. The Dance of the Dragons, though, Cregan Stark came much later. He was a big part of it, but it was Roddy the Ruin, Lord Roderick Dustin, that led the initial large army out of the north to fight in the early battles of the war. And boy, howdy. <laughs> Can't wait to see that guy on screen in the, in the House of the Dragon. Roddy the Ruin. Gu- guarantee he's going to be making an appearance or several. Has that character been cast? No, because he's probably not in season one. Probably not. Maybe. I-, I would guess season two, though. Probably season two, but we'll see. Lady Barbary also mentions her famous, her husband's famous axe-wielding uncle and a great uncle who fought in the War of Nine Penny Kings. So again, these are, these are active... This is not a family that sits out. They seem to be actively participating in whatever big events are occurring. I don't really have, you know, they didn't participate in the Blackfire Rebellions that much that we know of, but that's that's really true for the North in general. They seem to have sat out quite a bit. But Lady Barbie did send the minimum number of men to Rob Stark, however. She's also the bare minimum I can get away with without attracting attention. One interesting thing the I noticed... The bare minimum. What's that? The Barrow Minimum. The Barrow Minimum. Oh, zing. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Good said. As often as Starks marry other vassals around the North, there is not a Stark to Dustin marriage anytime recently within the last 200 years. I can't find any examples. So that is interesting. No Stark to Dustin marriage within the last like two to three centuries. Uh, we wonder if there's a little bit of anger or feeling left out because there's been a couple of Manderley marriages, there's been Blackwood marriage, there's been others. Uh, but yeah, you, you wonder about that. Let's get even closer to current times here. Nina says, maybe the chivalric and relatively Southron and cosmopolitan influence was also part of why Rickard chose to foster Brandon at Barrowton, with Barrowton particularly noted for knighthood. In fact, the only member among Ned Stark's Tower of Joy party specifically noted to have been a knight was Sir Mark Riswell from 
the neighboring Rills. Rickard may have appreciated the possible chivalric experience in the area that Brandon would inherit. He had Southern ambitions. He wants his kid, his heir, to learn to be more like a Southerner. What's the best place in the North for that? Could be White Harbor, but Barrington is, is potentially even better, or at least as good, and that's what happened. And Barrington is a better place to learn to ride like a knight, to learn horsemanship than, than White Harbor, probably. Likewise, Barrington would still be an attractive commercial spot, probably drawing the West Coast trade White Harbor might not see, and hosting overland trade coming from southern Westeros up the neck. Future Stark Lord, trained in chivalry and exposed to relatively more southern experience, would certainly appeal much more to southern Westerosi, with whom Rickard hoped to broker powerful alliances with. If you want to make alliances with people in the south, you have to be more like them. You have to have things in common. You want to appeal to them. It really fits well with that. Or at least be able to empathize them yes. with them. Yeah. If you're not actually like them, at least understand their culture, their terms, their lifestyles, et cetera. Yeah, you don't want to be like you know, wiping your mouth on the tablecloth. Just things that, you know, you want to just be do the things that they do, like fit in. Yeah, yeah. Also, having him foster there, ward there, makes it more likely to set up a marriage from that area, which maybe they knew was due. Yep, true, very true, yeah. So that this adds up really nicely because there's also what was happening elsewhere in the North at this time. Not only did Rickard send Brandon to Barrington, but he sent Ned to the Vale. Ned was fostered in the Vale. His two eldest sons were fostered in the, sort of in the South and, and completely in the South. And notice Roose Bolton did too. Roose Bolton sent his son, Domerick, who has come up several times this episode, to the Red Fort because it rhymes with Dreadfort. Clearly, that was why. Redfort, Dreadfort, and Breadfort. Clearly, the, uh, the triumvirate <laughs> of important locations. But send me to the breadfort, please. Yes, yes, that's the one I would prefer as well. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's this kind of around the same time. So that's it's Bruce Bolton saw the same thing. Well, my overlord is investing in southern alliances. I don't want to be left out of that. You come, we'll see where that came from. And you wonder as well, maybe since Brandon Stark fostered there, even though there haven't been these marriages with the Dustins or, or Riswells recently, maybe there were other Starks that fostered there for similar reasons, or at least to get the experience of city life, you know, you would at least be around a lot of different people that you're going to be ruling over later. It's, it would seem like a good place to send a future lord of, of Winterfell, just to spend some time. We know Domeric Bolton spent a lot of time there too, speaking of him again, but tragically, the relationship between Winterfell and the Riswells and the Dustins was severely harmed by the Tower of Joy. Not only did Lord Dustin die there, which caused... Lady Dustin, a lot of anger and bitterness, and partly about the bones. She's mad about the bones. He didn't bring her bones home. He's mad. Or she's mad that Ned brought Lyanna's bones, but not Lord Dustin's. And and I thought maybe that was just a little bit petty. But here again, this is she's a barrel lander. They graves and burials are a big deal to them. I think that might just be like maybe that's not so petty from her. That's kind of important, like having something to bury. Like she had no part of him. Maybe I shouldn't underestimate how important that would be to her. Maybe that's not just bitter to me. That's like a real, something that Barrel Landers really value. So maybe Ned... It might just be a specific thing that she gets to, I don't know how to say it, to cling on to something that's hard for people to argue against. If she's mad that her son died or her husband died in battle, well, my husband died in battle too. Lots of people can say that. Yeah, but I didn't even get his bones back. Oh, that's messed up. Yeah. That's like the, the nail in a coffin for her frustration. No pun intended. Yeah, and it wasn't, and it, it also wasn't like battle, battle. It was like the, the war was over, but they were mm-hmm. just looking for yeah. Ned's sister. And, you know, she got the horse back. 
his horse. He took his he took his amazing horse to the war, and Ned brought that horse back. By the way, why didn't he bring the bones back? Is it well is it that hard of a thing to do? Is it like he had just been freshly killed? Like how do you you know like how's he gonna? I don't know. Get... He did it for Liana, right? Yeah, that's true. He did it for Liana. He may have brought her whole body, and then yeah, maybe he just it was just him and Howland, you know, maybe and, and maybe a squire. I don't know. Maybe they couldn't bring. Maybe it was a tough but, decision he had to yeah. make at some point. But maybe but. he should have realized it would have been important to the barrel to House Dustin to have a body or have something. You know, maybe that was an oversight on his you know, part. It occurs to me there were must have been what ten or twelve other bodies there. Oh yeah, because the Kingsguard. Yeah, Ned built Cairns. They got he built yeah. he pulled down the Tower of Joy, which is another implication there was more people there. Because how the hell did he do that without help? Yeah. <laughs> And built cairns, yeah. So they were less buried and more with rocks on top because it's the desert, you know. But yeah, yeah, so that's, that's, that's what happened. So they did get buried. They were just left out there. But that wasn't, that wasn't good enough for Lady Dust. And she thought, you know, she, he should be buried here in there. The, play, the, the place he's buried matters a lot. Yeah. And, there's, and like you said, yeah, that's, that's just that's unresolved trauma too. Like just she needs to have someone to blame, lost her husband, and that put her in this state of bitterness and, and lack of, human connection and all that. It's something she can do about too. She can intercept Ned's bones, yeah, you know, something, some, yeah. And maybe it won't even matter that much to other people. Theon's a little shocked at that. He's like, oh, the bones? Like, why does that matter so much? Barrelander. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, why it matters, yeah. I guess. Like, those bones are not getting, like, some people are probably like, they really care that much? Like, it probably doesn't even occur to them that someone would care about staling these bones. But a Barrelander, <laughs> a little different there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So she also notices when they're down in the crypts, she has crypt awareness. She's a, more more signs of this. Is she's the one who notices the missing swords <laughs> in in the crypts of Winterfell. And Theon's like, whoa. It, it alarms him. He didn't notice. But when she points out, he's like, ah. <laughs> ah, like, oh. Because he's thinking of himself as the ghost in Winterfell. And now he's like, I'm not the only ghost, am I? <laughs> it's really <laughs> scary. Yeah. Real quick about the Riswells. She is, her father is Lord Roderick. He's still around. There's Roger, Rickard, and Roos. So there's the R family, and those are her brothers. And they were the first to declare for, for Bolton when he was named Warden of the North because, right, the, the whole deal was Roos makes his deal with Tywin, does the Red Wedding, gets named Warden of the North, marches back north, Theon clears out Moat Kalen, he meets up with Ramsay, and then they go to Barriton. And he summons the Northern Lords and says, hey, everyone come here and pay homage to me. And to Tommen. It's not just to him. He's like, you have to swear to Tommen now. And because that's the same thing. If you swear to Tommen, Tommen has appointed him Warden of the North. So it's the two go together. But then he says, all right, that's what we're going to do. But we're going to pivot to having the wedding at Winterfell because that's got grandeur and authority behind it. You're going to marry Ned Stark's daughter in Winterfell and that's going to have gravitas. And Ramsay's upset at this. He's like, damn it, let's just do this now and go get Stannis. Roos is got to do this right, man. And Winterfell's eight days away. It's not like some huge delay here, you know? So... It adds legitimacy to it yeah, also. Yeah, the way they do it in Winterfell. Like you just kidnapped the Stark girl and forced her into this. But if you did it at Winterfell and had all these witnesses that are friends of the Starks and yeah. it's more real. I think I think some people like, like Lady Dustin probably like the idea of having a baritone because it gives more grandeur to baritone. Like, this is the spot where you're crowning the, well, uh, dubbing the new Lord of the North, not the crown, but similar. It's, it's It gives some power to them as well. The grave of the first men and the first king and all that, that would have some value. But Roos 
That, which is why Roos didn't make that call right away. He thought about it. He, you know what? Actually, we're going to go do this over at Winterfell. Mm-hmm. Usually we start with this, but today we're having it as part of our wrap-up, which is chapters that actually take place in the Barrowlands. We started with Ned 2, A Game of Thrones. That's the one with Ned and Robert talking about it. The one that we called in Val Arboretus, My Dinner with Boltons. And there's Reek 3, A Dance of Dragons. That's the dinner scene. And there's in John 4, A Dance with Dragons. Melisandre has a vision of Barrowton. Because of the, and we know it's Barrowton because of the banners flying. Because it's the same exact banners that Theon sees when he gets there. So you wonder about this. What is going on? Are the, how would the Barrowton people, Lady Dustin especially, react to John becoming king in the north? A Stark. A Stark bastard. Is that going to be a problem for them? Or are they going to have to just roll with it because everyone else is going to be on that side and they're not going to be the one outlier that goes down fighting? However, they don't like Stannis. <laughs> the, the most of the houses that are there, those banners, it's certainly not the whole North, obviously. It's the ones that are the most ready to jump ship on the Starks because of issues or cynicism and people who are not friends to Stannis. There's houses there that are like they're anti-Stannis or Bruce is pumping this whole like foreigner thing. Like, ah, don't you want to be ruled by Northerners? Don't want to be ruled by Stannis. To be fair, Roos isn't the only one. That was yeah, the, the quote I just read earlier. It was like, what do these people down there know about us? Right? Yeah. So if if Lady Dustin's desire for revenge maybe goes too far, if she's not that caring about the people of Barrington, if if she's willing to put her people at risk to, to go after her own goals, or maybe just because bad things happen, maybe because Ramsay gets in control, maybe because... A dragon comes? Who knows? We could have something like this. Ramsay's fury, whether it comes from Ramsay or not, might be how Barrowton finds itself ending in A Song of Ice and Fire. Ramsay seethed. All she does is spit on me. The day will come when I'll set her precious wooden town afire. Let her spit on that, see if it puts out the flames. Because if you think Ramsay is going to outlive Roos, and I do then that's going to cause a schism. Dust, Lady Dustin will not follow her, will not follow him. She will absolutely not follow him. That's been made very clear. So will he go right for her? He's like, well, first thing I'm going to do is get rid of that damn Lady Dustin because he, he's driven by bitterness and revenge and spite is more than, way more than she is. <laughs> that's part of why he doesn't try to, she doesn't like him. So he may just be like, all right, well, I want to shore up my allies here. I know she's not on my side, so I'm going to go just take out, take her out and then do whatever, whatever's next, you know, Step two profit, but so he might just go right for her and he's got a bigger army. So it might just be that simple. He might just march on Barrowton, burn it. And then soon enough, John kills him or Stannis kills him or something like that. Or maybe he doesn't have a chance. Maybe he's killed before he has a chance to march on Barrowton. But it's only eight days from Winterfell and he's, and that's where he is right now. I do worry a little bit about Barrowton, her precious wooden town. I don't want it to burn, but that is our episode for today. The trivia question again was Lady Dustin's guard shares what name with one of the Lord Starks that has a statue that is named by Theon in the same scene. It is Lord Baron Stark. Her guard's name is Baron. At one point she says, Baron, the lantern, you know, and it's just like the, it's like five paragraphs apart. It's kind of like, what is this just a coincidence? Like, why? why I, I don't know. Maybe it just shows that these names are still popular in the North. I don't know. 
maybe there's nothing to it, but I just thought it was neat. Baron is, is the one who's dying at the beginning of She-Wolves of Winterfell, circa 212-ish, circa the Duncan Egg. We're going to go north to fight for them. We saw that on the way to, on the Mystery Night. That's where they were headed, remember? It was Baron Stark was the one that was hiring swords to fight against Dagon Greyjoy's Iron Man. So, that's, uh, so that makes sense. That's why it's a recent statue, because it's less than 100 years ago. In that chapter, they also, there's another doubling, because one of the Stark statues they pass is Lord Theon Stark. Theon's like, hey, there's my namesake. And he's the Hungry Wolf. So it's a double-double of names there. And the hunger, the Theon Stark is so cool that he's going to get his own episode one day because he just he did a whole lot of stuff. And he's part of one of the important figures that helps us sort of maybe maybe piece together a, a full chronology of the North one day. I, I did want to ask, it, is it known what... Hmm, we were talking earlier about how eventually the Starks overcome the Barrowmen. Do we know if that was earlier on and then they went on to conquer everyone else or if they'd mostly conquer everyone else and that was the one they finally got the former yeah yeah maybe i wasn't as clear about that earlier but yeah it was we theorized that it was that win that enabled them to get the ball rolling because they all of a sudden were so much more powerful once you have barrowton on your side no other northern power had a huge castle and a city or a big town whatever all you know to combine its might especially because there was no white harbor there was no car hold there was just like a lot of another there weren't a lot of other powers or, or or they weren't as powerful the marsh king was the last to fall and the red kings were in between so we know the boltons were still ruling in the east of the eastern north we'll just call it the east for this so yeah we're pretty sure that the barrow kings were like the first major king to fall maybe except for maybe the blackwoods and they may not have been you probably count them as major, but that's really difficult to to place in the timeline. But yeah, but in terms of order, like we can't, we don't have like dates, and but we do have order. Like we don't know when it happened, but okay. we have the general order of advice. Yeah, it seems like Barrowton was one of the first, then the East, then the Neck last, which I think we established that last week. We we had a quote that showed that it seemed pretty clear that the Neck was last, which makes sense because it would be the hardest and the least valuable for <laughs> for taxes and soldiers yeah. and all that. The most valuable for defense and against the South, least valuable for getting things to go elsewhere. All right, we mentioned a few uh, of our other episodes today. We mentioned the Night King episode. Gonna get a cat. Get a cat. <laughs> we mentioned a couple of Valar Reedus episodes. Valar Reedus episode 9 of 19 in a, uh, for A Dance of Dragons is the episode where we see Barrowton. 11 of 19 for A Dance of Dragons for Valar Reedus is where we see the crypt scene with Barbary Dustin and Theon. And of course, the buildings of Brandon and Brandon the Builder. Those separate episodes are very relevant here as well. And we encourage you to send questions as well. If you have things that about this topic that you think we could have gone into more detail on, feel free to reach out, whether we- it's on Discord, Facebook, Twitter, or anywhere. And we have a um, call for all of you. If you also listen to other podcasts with people who are knowledgeable and you've heard them bring up Game of Thrones or A Song of Ice and Fire, oh, the kitty. If you have heard podcasters, YouTubers, anyone like that, if you've heard them reference Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, let us know. We want to have more guests, but obviously we want guests who know the series. Yeah, so basically, especially if they're like a history podcast, they have, a, they have subject matter expertise. It doesn't have to be history, but that's, yeah. a really, that's a really good one. Something that they're that you think is relevant to our real world bridging into Westeros, our, our c- comparisons, I think that would be really good. Yeah, so you, 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 get the, you get the point. If you've been listening to Valerie's for the World of Ice and Fire, you know what we mean. 
the kind of guests that we've already had so far, but also other types as well. If you think you, you found someone that would be a good match, we'll reach out to them. Just, you know, put us on their trail. Yes. So we know who they are. I'm a big podcast consumer myself, and that's where a lot of our guests come from, from shows that I listen to. But there are so many good podcasts out there, and it's not all podcasters, obviously. There's, and the podcasters have to have mentioned the song Who and Fire, have to mention you know, we have to Game of Thrones, to know that they actually have read it, which yeah. they might not have mentioned, or we, you know, all that. That's often how I find out. Someone makes a Game of Thrones joke, like a historical reference. They're like, it's kind of like Joffrey, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, ah! Like, I'm going to invite it's you. The, it's the... The Leonardo, one of us. Yeah, it's the Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> meme where he's Pointing. he sits up and points at the TV. He's like, "Hey, that's." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you in advance to anyone who helps find us a new guest. We love having guest discussions. Really fun thing to do, and it provides us with a level of knowledge that we wouldn't have normal access to. Okay, so thanks again for coming, everyone. Thanks to everyone who showed up live. Appreciate you catching this afterwards on podcast version as well. However, you consume history of Westeros. We're thankful for your attention. But thanks to Nina for her notes. Great stuff today, as usual. Thanks to our patrons. We are very appreciative of your long support, and we will keep the bonus episodes coming, as well as these regular weekly episodes. Thanks to Joey, Jesse, Kevin for the music, for intro, outro, and Valerita style music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the maps and the video intro. Thanks to the mods who run things over on History of Westeros social media groups. Oh yeah, Aziz mentioned you're having a little Facebook Live Ask Me Anything stream. The game stream is off for a few weeks and so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to, which is always on Fridays at 6 Eastern, except for right now, but we're going to do an AMA on Facebook. I'm going to go live at Friday at the same time I would do the game stream, about 6 o'clock. That's in our Facebook group, which we have, if you're not in, uh, we have a Facebook group that's uh, pretty popular, pretty happening. Yeah, yeah, there's over 3,000 people in there, and you can, you know, we don't only talk Game of Thrones stuff, obviously it's the main thing, but yeah, this this AMA will be anything. You can ask me anything you want, whether it's about the House of the Dragon, whether it's about, I don't know, the Dune movie, whether it's about what I had for breakfast. Go for it. So from... All of us over at History of Westeros, including the cats in Colorado and Roswell. Until next time, Valar Reredus. 